Hey, Mike, just checking in here real quick with everyone. So Derek and I in editing realized that we forgot to introduce one of our third. Uh, we had a we have a local patron that uh, wanted to sort of chime in and we like had them on for a bit. But again, we just, you know, it's the wine. We forgot to introduce them. So they're going to be vocal for a couple times here and there. Uh, our impromptu producer, if you will. But uh, yeah, we just wanted to clear that up real quick without the confusion. So enjoy. You cannot avoid the interplay of politics with an orthodox religion. The power struggle permeates the training, educating, and disciplining of the orthodox community. Because of this pressure, the leaders of such a community inevitably must face the ultimate internal question. To succumb to complete opportunism as the price of maintaining their rule, or risk sacrificing themselves for the sake of the orthodox ethic. From Burundi, the religious issues by the Princess Irola. Spice World, an inebriated exploration of Frank Herbert's Dune. My name is Derek. And my name is Mike. With each chapter, we open up a new bottle of wine and have a bit of a buzzed book club here, Derek. Uh, I'm Mike. We're back for chapter 42 this week, and you picked up the bottle of wine, right? Because I'm empty-handed. <laughs> you just slid it over here. Oh, is that why you slid over here so I can <laughs> talk <was>. about it? <laughs> it's delegation at its finest. <laughs> this is uh, called Le Crema. It's from Monterey. Pinot Noir Rosé from 2019. And uh, because you just looked this over here, I haven't actually read the back at all. There's really not much up there. There really mic. isn't. They got 40 years of winemaking experience. And you know what? It shows because it's pretty delicious. Yeah. Why don't you just t- take, t- take a sip? Tell me what you uh, taste in there. We'll make up our own notes. We'll make up our own. <laughs> Do it our own way. It's just like our pronunciation guides. That's not bad, though. No, it's not. That's, I, it's a lot like last week's, kind of. I get like a mellow white wine with like uh, a lot of hints to pear. Okay. Like, not to pair with literally the fruit. Literally the fruit. Literally the fruit. Yeah. Yeah, it's not as adventurous as that one that had, like, all the crazy flavors mm. packed into it. There's not really a lot of berry. It's got bananas. It's got pomegranates. No, no this, is, <laughs> this is simple. This is kind of like, this is a good evening wine. Mm. I really like this. So that was Spend Lecrema. your days sitting on your porch watching uh, those sand riders out in the dunes. <laughs> like, guiding or guarding this jealously. Don't yeah. let them see. Don't let them see. Mm. But. We're going to start this chapter off with quite the quote. Yeah, yeah it's like, I had to reread it a few times be like, whoa. What the? It's because we got the week off last time. But it was really <laughs> easy going. This one, it's very much commentary on religion as a whole. And we're mm-hmm. going to talk about orthodoxy. And I think the other thing we should keep in mind is almost like heresy and how heresy well, yeah, can evolve. orthodox and, religion. Well, no, I was going to say how heresy evolves and um like kind of progress a religion right Mm -hmm. it adapts to like the culture that it's in but we're it's um emphasizing the sacrifice you'd have to make to maintain orthodoxy Mm -hmm. because it's something that is not inherent in a religion right well it's like i mean i kind of equate it to the same thing as like you know uh, telling a bunch of like white lies here and there until eventually someone like calls you out on it you have to keep maintaining the white lies in Mm -hmm. order to like uh continue on with uh the whatever narrative you've made and it's uh, that is that you, how you're looking at of like um, the opportunism to maintain orthodoxy? Yeah. That's what you mean? Of like lying to keep this established? Yeah, like, yeah. No, this is still true because of this. And I sort of paint over the changing environment and culture we're in. 
Uh, I kind of took it for the opposite angle, and I was thinking of the second half of this, of like sacrificing, or I'm sorry, you were kind of bringing up the sacrificing themselves for the sake of their orthodoxy. Yeah. Uh, to maintain it, they're telling these lies. Uh, thinking, I was looking, I think, to succumbing to the opportunism, and it's very strangely worded, which is again why I like you had to go back over this a few times, and how even just now I kind of confused the two. Were they they're sort of similar well, in how he I, frames I would them. take that uh, first one as being. Uh, you know, like, Paul's going back to the Imperium. Like, uh, that's sort of sacrificing this uh, religion in a way. Yeah, yeah. If he doesn't, like, you know, stay true to the Fremen beliefs and desert disciplines. Okay, yeah, yeah. Just being like, we're going to space and we're going to take it all. And just taking the first yeah. step of the campaign. Yeah! And using the Fremen as his, like, uh, stepping stone to get there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in terms of religion as a whole, just to look back to like our world, I was thinking of like the Catholic Church kind of in the past 20 years where they've uh, approached so many of the things like gay marriage and stuff like that, being a little more open to it, where they're changing their orthodox ways as a way to like keep their religion alive and uh, maintain some power in the world. And I think it's just sort of the, one of the ways you could look up of a much more subdued version of the Fremen, uh, clearly right. not murdering and scourging their way through. Beyond that, uh, oh, how do you think that applies to our chapter? Well, I mean, we already talked about how Paul and Stilgar are going to come to a head at some point here, exactly. possibly. Yes. And uh, Paul's going to sort of have to take the lead on that. Or, like, he's being put in a position on several different plans where he's going to be put in the lead on that. Uh, Lady Jessica wants to put him there. I don't know if Stilgar necessarily wants him there, but he knows he's got value. I'm still up in the air with Paul. I definitely think Cheney wants that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Cheney's all about the myth. All about the myth. Yeah, exactly. Just like her dad. So I'm. I don't know. It's. Uh, I think we just need to get more into Paul's head, and I think even this chapter we get a little bit more insight where he knows he may need to do something, but he doesn't want to. And if he can avoid coming to a head like that, he's going to try to. Right. And I, I like how you kind of touched on this applying to everybody there. A little bit to Paul, a little bit to Jessica, a little bit to Cheney, and then a little bit to Stilgar. Mm-hmm. And I think it really resonates with Stilgar of like, he is the one looking at orthodoxy and like a progression or like a heresy right. developing, right? Like, do I let this Mahdi really take over or do I need to make sure the Fremen ways stay as they are? Well, which is best for the tribe. Which, yeah, and I don't think he knows. I don't think... Because uh, Paul doesn't know either. Well, I don't think <laughs> Paul is weighing it as, like, what's best for the tribe. True. It's like, if you were to, like, um, weigh up or balance every decision or all the, um, what I want to say, all the influences in his decision, mm-hmm. I don't think the tribe would be the overarching one as it would be with Stilgar. Right. Like, there's no doubt with Stilgar, it's like, that's 51% of his concern. At mm-hmm. least. Uh, with Paul, I feel like it's a lot smaller. With Jessica, it's probably non-existent. Mm. Like, she only cares about Paul getting back to the Imperium. Her ticket there, right? True. It's going to be tricky, too, because uh, he's got a he's got a son who's going to be, like, Fremen now, right? We have Leto II to consider. Yeah, because, like, with. I don't know if I consider uh, Aaliyah to be a Fremen because she is born of two members of the Imperium. Granted, she's grown up on Arrakis. She's got to learn water discipline and everything. But she's got all these other memories as well from uh, Lady Jessica's line as well as Ramallah's line. She's a little bit of a weird duck in the desert. Oh, would you almost say that she's an exception? (laughs) (laughs) Is that uh, perhaps applicable to this Atreides child? (laughs) Yeah. All of them, Mike. None of them are normal. They're all freaks. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just wondering uh, if, like, his son's... uh, life and future sort of will dictate some of his decisions now going forward. Oh, yeah. Oh, I will tell you, definitely. 
already that's on Paul's mind a lot, right? Like, um, when we as we go through this, he's going to get control of the worm. Where does he want to go? We're going down south. Going to go see my kid. And even though that wasn't really the reason, it's sort of the excuse he uses right. for the reason, it's in there. He, it is on his mind because he brought it up two chapters ago. Like, tell me about our son. And where I think you and I Has touched on. Has he not on, seen his son yet? That's what I was just going to say. Like, where you and I talked about that last week, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. I, I think you might be right. Just of since he hasn't gone to the south, unless she, uh, Cheney had the baby in the north, which is possible. Maybe he's there on, like, the day of the birth. I would hope he took that trip, but... You think there's a little sign on the worm, danger baby on board? <laughs> <laughs> you get a special pallet queen. It's got a little hood over it. It's got some suspensions. It does a rocket. Or maybe, oh, you know how we're going to learn? You take the little worm out. Maybe you put babies on smaller worms. <laughs> we got a little baby worm carrier. No. There's so many possibilities. But let's uh, let's ditch this opening quote. Um, oh, what book was this from? Too a new one, right? Yeah, Muad'Dib: The Religious Issues. The Religious Issues, and of course, another Princess Irulan original. It's, yeah, uh, you know, I'm starting to wonder if there's more than one girl, and that this is just a cover name. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's a whole industry. They got a work room. <laughs> yeah, it's the orphan room. <laughs> mm. <laughs> they got jobs. <laughs> All right. Now let's leave this behind. Let's dive into this chapter. All right. It starts off nice and strong because we got to come back to Paul standing in front of a mountain of a worm coming towards him. Yeah. Right? We lost, it was That's like a cresting uh, mount coming approaching. And um, we have, uh, he's remembering like Stilgar's words kind of to him. And mm-hmm. it's, he's like, you know, trying to be part of the desert and don't stand like a smuggler. You know, don't be all jittery. Just like calm, like the dunes. And uh, the worm had its many teeth, and they were like a giant flower at this point, kind of coming out of that sand. You can imagine just seeing like that half circle, or I don't know how much of it is uh, kind of emerged from the sand at this point. The smell of spice really fills the air. You can get smell it even through the filters at this point, mm-hmm. as always when they get like that close. And then these words from Stilgar of, How far outside the maker's radius must you stand in peace and? And uh, how many do you think that is, Mike? It was a half meter for every meter of the maker's diameter, Derek. Yeah. Now, our deep dive today, we're going to do the Fremen education. And one of the ways they're kind of taught is this sort of like challenge and response in what they call the riddle game. And so I think that's sort of emblematic of that, where like you ask this question and you get this answer and response and you always judge on that. Mm. Uh, And they do that for kind of everything, though. So Stilgar asks him again, I'm like, all right, you've answered that. He says, why? What do we get? You got to avoid the vortex of its passage, so you got uh, time to run in and mount it. Yeah, so this thing's going to be churn- coming up. That sand is churning all around it where it's displacing and basically telling us, like, it's all water when it's coming around, right? Yeah. Everything's in motion. You could easily get, like, sucked right under and then just crushed by this worm as it goes. And that's going to be a mile and a half of it rolling over you because this is the longest worm ever at this mm-hmm. point. So then we learn, I think the funnest fact of this chapter is that Paul has had some practice. We bust out the little worms from the sketches and you ride them on the sand. <laughs> Which, so, yeah, yeah. So they, they keep little worms in their sketches? Well, we, that was the little maker that they drown. So they just, they, they just kept that there for a while. It lives down in a little, it's got a little cavern that they put it in. Yeah, just doing its thing. It says that they breed them. Ooh, does it really? Yeah. You've written the little ones bread for the seed and the water of life. Interesting. I don't know fully what to make of that in terms of like breeding. Breeding start worms. Because to... like 
it takes thousands of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I got nothing. Uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 you go through Reverend Mothers pretty quickly, I feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I feel like that's got to mean like, I mean, yeah, because it wouldn't be like growing. There's no other no. Like, term you would use. I totally hear what you're saying. Do I, they I, have a bunch of worms in a room, maybe? I, uh, I, and like, but them the breeding part still makes no sense. I don't know because all I can see is raising is the word I think I'd want to see. Yeah, right. And I imagine them catching just small worms and raising them up. But I don't know how we go about Fremen breeding small worms. So let's leave that in the sand where it belongs and bury it. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, Mike, they take out this little worm that's like, what, nine meters or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we just ride it around. It's yeah. like the little roller coaster at the fair. <laughs> And then Whee. you, you got to imagine there if you mess up and fall, that worm probably just tries to bury and run away. <laughs> and you guys got to go dig this motherfucker out and like pull it, it back. It. Like, Shamoon, run. <laughs> and then we got to haul it back in. Yeah. It's just this wrangling worms happening in somewhere that it must be really fun. With like little kids are 12. They Well, no, 12 is when they take their tests. So they're probably like 10, <laughs> like climbing up and riding this worm. Or just this little Bronco ranch, <laughs> like breaking worms. This little, you know, little maker hooks that are. Yeah, kids yeah, and stuff yeah. <laughs> Great sounds kids. so good um and then you have paul there 18 <laughs> as they go and do it i'm embarrassing that's kind of the context of this yeah though. exactly it's like him showing up at a bouncy house i'm just like no but i have to be here i gotta take my test um bring us back to the worm at hand though we have uh, the thumper starts, and it starts to blend in with the hiss of the worm at this point because it's been a thump, thump. But right, now right, it's right. sort of like this overarching static is sort of disguising it. The smell that was just spice and cinnamon now has like a mineral bitterness to it. And that's going to be like the fa- the uh, kind of uh, mineral factories going through the glands in the worm where it's churning all those elements yeah, and like just tearing them apart in its little furnace. And uh, the worm is almost on Paul at this moment. The wave lifted his feet. Surface dust swept across him. He steadied himself. His world dominated by the passage of that sand-clouded curving wall, that segmented cliff, the uh, the ring lines sharply defined in it. That's that's wild. That's just the whole terrain of this desert changing. It seemed like... uh... The, the cresting font segments through a sand wave that would sweep across his knees. Yeah, so you're like, kind of get like half buried. And yeah, you, just have to, you have to take it, and that's why you, I think, uh, so much to Stilgar is like measuring out. You need to be at the right distance because no matter what, you're gonna get stuck there. A and little you're bit. gonna have to run and have enough time to get there before the vortex swallows you up. Well, he's not gonna run out because what happens next is that he sights along with his hooks. So I like this too. He looks up and he, you're looking down your hook and kind of mm-hmm. aiming with it. He leans in and they catch on do you think he does a babe ruth with his maker hooks just like one big swing yeah. he like points out before the before the worms comes up like that's where i'm gonna get it you think, no i think back to the crowd to cheney this one's for you and then <laughs> swings in i would hope not because stilgar told them not to show off <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> do it by the book so we can do cool stuff later uh but yeah so he swings them in and they catch Gets right onto some ring mm-hmm. segment. And uh, when that, he's able to kind of leap up, placing his feet against the maker. So you think he's like, basically, we are perpendicular to the ground, or parallel to the ground at this point, right? Right. And then the maker, uh, and this is the real test of the matter. Because if he failed to open that hook, it would crush him right now. Mm-hmm. And it would just roll over on him and be like, that was annoying. Yep. But if you got it just right... You lift up that ring segment. Some sand will get in there, and it will get so irritated because they're so finicky and picky. Mm-hmm. You roll you right to the top. 
and the worm does, and it does it slowly. And uh, as it's going, we glide over the thumper too, so that just stops. Now, if a worm gets sand in its ring segment, how does it get the sand out? Uh, I mean, ultimately, I don't think it does. I think Is it, it just like if you open up the segment, it's immediately going to turn because it's like, nope, nope, nope. Yeah, yeah, it must, I mean, I think it just is irritated, right. and it probably, like, that sand's forever in there until it, like, calluses. I, I'm making that up for sure, you know? <laughs> but, like, there's definitely, there's no mechanism to push it back out, right? It's how and you it, worm it's just, curls. Yeah, oh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a thing? Yeah, why not? <laughs> why uh, not? <laughs> Well, just like it's somewhere no sand should be. Because right. the idea is that these should never be opened up by nature. Right, right, right. right. Or unless some worm like bit the shit out of another one. You know one. what? I, I'm willing to venture and put out there might be sand pearls. And I think that's how you get a, a pearl from a worm. Yeah, yeah. That's how oysters work. Right, but they take one sand into them. There's other factors, I think, into the whole <laughs> process. But ultimately, we'll go with that's how oysters work. <laughs> <laughs> but it is though. Yeah, yeah, or at least the yeah the process for it. Yeah, but they, they got they digest with it though, and it's in like their stomach. With this though, wouldn't we just be like uh, vaporizing it slowly? But you know what I'd like to imagine? It's like a spice pearl, spice like pearl? spice gas collects around it or something, and it's just like some something spice oriented. <laughs> but. We'll have to uh, we'll dig up our own sandworm eventually, Mike. We'll we'll pull this thing apart and get to the bottom of it. Sounds dangerous. We'll get a little one. <laughs> uh, now, well, Paul's getting uh, driven up here as the worm's churning, right? And mm-hmm. we come up on top. He is just uh, as happy as can be. Happy as a clam, you could even say. <laughs> happy as a oyster. <laughs> And uh, he felt exultant, like an emperor surveying his world. And he suppressed a sudden urge uh, to cavort there. And then that's when he sort of like, oh, that's why Stuttgart warned me. That feeling (laughs) right there. (laughs) People get excited. They just like detach their maker hooks like, yeah. Yeah, they do like flips around, get them back. You can uh, unhook. You can run down a few rings, hook them back in. You can do handstands with the hooks. No, thank you. It's it's wild stuff. But that means that it's been done many times. Mm -hmm. And mm-hmm. the Fremen are good at it. Because clearly, if enough do it that we talk about it, it's not like fatal. And they usually every time. do it at what, like eight or 12? 12, yeah. Yeah. 12. It's your little butt mitzvah. You're out there riding worms. Uh, but Paul, he carefully, he just moves his hook one at a time, you know, 10 and 12, just doing it just <laughs> right. <laughs> and uh, this is causing it to like turn and uh, rotate the worm around and meet up with the tribe, right? Mm-hmm. This troop that's been waiting for him. And uh, as he does, he's sort of sweeping by him. Everybody just climbs up with their hooks. Yeah, because you can't you can't stop the worm. No, not yeah. There's no break on the worm. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of just like all forward, and you can uh, you we can adjust the speed a little bit with the goaders, as we're gonna learn. The goaders. The goaders. Yeah. Did that go by you? Uh, no, I saw that. I just didn't okay. really know what it was. Well, basically, we're going to make it up, but, uh, <laughs> well, within context. I don't have anything too sure, specific. Sure, sure. We'll get there. So, uh, Fremen all climb up. They're all careful not to hit the sensitive rings, which to me means there must be, like, another way to grab it, too, without opening oh. up. If you're just, like, literally hacking into the ring a little bit and scrambling up, because you don't want it to, like, rotate with the rider up top. And just right, like right, right. spill off everybody. Well, in that one makes big sense loop. too. Yeah, yeah. You got to have two different ways to go up this. Thing. I didn't think about that. If it's got uh, different ring segments that are open at different places, what does the worm do? To freak the hell out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it would probably whatever one's most irritating, right? Yeah. I think you would try to alleviate the most amount of pain you could. Um, hmm. So now the fremen ride up. 
they're all in a triple line behind Paul, it says. And this thing, remember, is very wide. So you can go a few men abreast on the top. And you, we know you can run a long way back. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we yeah. got plenty of room. You can do a little track meet this, on top this of this thing. This worm is like a mile and a half long or something like that? Yeah. And from the sounds of it, it's entirely exposed because we're going to be hitting the tail end right. with a little stick. So yeah, yeah, yeah. How you yell that far on the worm. Like, you must need, like, a couple guys to relay that holler down to get to the end. Well, I mean, all you're going to hear is, like, that slithering sand, right? That hissing noise that, like, completely drowns out a thumper. Mm. And that's, like, a heavy bass note, right? True. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I guess. I was just, I didn't know if it would be different from being on the worm or being on the sand, which you would, like, hear more. (laughs) Yeah. No, like, legitimately, though. And, like, the only other sound you have in the desert is, like, some birds. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they've got, like, a line, like, oh, hit the tail, hit the tail, hit the tail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like a little relay, right? Yeah, yeah, of, yeah. Like, with the lines of people, you have a few people that are just, like, keeping it going. Down they've the back. got flags. I think knows. it's entirely what it is. Uh, or even hand signals with how adept they are and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. For sure, for sure. Um, but now, uh, with all these men lined up, we have Stilgar makes his way through, and he's checking everybody in the ranks and stuff before he finally gets to Paul. And when he gets to Paul, he sort of looks at his hook placement and just like, good, good, good. And uh, Paul is just beaming. He's as happy as can be again. Just like, I did it. I'm a man now. And then uh, Stilgar begins teacher Stilgar. And he's got he's got duty here. And he's not, uh, he's also, there's some beef between the two. And I think Stilgar really enjoys this moment to like bring that <laughs> up a little bit. Because he's like, oh, you did it, eh? And then, uh, I, bet you, I bet you think you're doing a really good job, don't you? And this is, again, why I bring up the, um, the noise around. Because it says, raising his voice above the hiss of their passage. Oh, that's so he, fair. Even that's he fair. has to kind of like bring this up. Ah, like right, yelling right at him. That's what you think. You did it. He straightened. Now I tell you, that was a very sloppy job. We have 12-year-olds who do better. <laughs> there was drum sand to your left where you waited. You could not retreat there if the worm turned that way. And Paul's smile is just completely like, slips away. son of a bitch. <laughs> yeah. It's so necessary, though. And it's very uh, similar to when Paul did that murder that first time he killed somebody. Real fun fact. When mm. I was uh, learning to drive, I had a moment like this with my driving instructor. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, it was like uh, prior to even taking the test. It was like getting uh, during the class where you had to like take a certain amount of hours with the instructor and like mm-hmm. one of your fellow like uh, uh, students in the car with you. And we we're on these back roads and I <laughs> took like this wild turn, which, you know, you know, road goes there. I'm on this road. I want to go to that road. It seemed totally fine. Yeah. So I like go up uh, around like this, uh, this bend, get into the road and there's a moment of silence there. And then the guy looks at me and so, so how do you feel about that turn you just took there? I'm <laughs> <laughs> just like, well, pretty good until you said that. <laughs> I was like on the wrong lane of traffic for a solid like 30 seconds. Yeah. It was really bad. And that, that wasn't like, that was your the training, like with the yeah, instructor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Remember my, uh, my similar driving story? My uh, dr- actual driver's test. Uh, we were going, and you just do the loop through the town, and you come back. And there was one point where it's like... Uh, the one way, and the left lane turns, and the right lane doesn't. I was in the left, and he's like, uh, Derek, we're going straight. And I just, whoop, ran to the correct lane. Didn't look over or anything, no blinker. And he's just like, uh, that's not the way we do that. And I was like, oh, we get back to the 
final spot, right? Uh-huh. I parked the car. We're in front of the uh, office, the DMV there. The girl who took the test previously was still on the curb crying because he <laughs> failed her. He looked at her. He looked over at me. He looked back to her, and he said, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> he gave me my <laughs> license. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> and like I, I got to school, I knew the girl too. I felt so bad. I was like, well, Nicole, you didn't get it, but Derek did. So bad. It was so bad for him to say that to me. <laughs> like, don't tell me that. <laughs> Man, I'll take it. <laughs> All right. Back to the drum sand. Excellent. Now. The reason he's being reprimanded here is uh, that even in a test, uh, you can still call on a secondary. Right. Basically, if things are going bad, they don't want you to die taking this test. Even in, like, the most significant right. right? You know, Mm -hmm. this isn't worth it. (laughs) If we can do something better, we're all here to be as a tribe. Because ultimately, when you're out on the sand, that's what it's going to be like, too. If somebody else is there, you put them as your secondary. Right. And... uh, Paul, like, he sees the logic in this right away. And I think this is one of the first, if not only times, Paul has reflected and said, I'm wrong. Oh. Right? Interesting. Like, it wasn't even like he... He doesn't do it very often, but I think there have been, like, a handful of times, maybe. I think other times you could get him to reassess, but it always had to be he had to find the reason. This is the first time I feel like he's been like, ah, shit. You can't get rid of Stilgar. Come on. No. Well, okay. You put this in the, keep, <laughs> the keeper column? Yeah, I'm pointing on the Stilgar side. Okay. Flag down. Oh, my. Cancer puppy. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, we have Stilgar kind of telling him, look, in a tight position, always leave yourself a secondary. Someone to take the marker if you cannot. Remember that we work together. That way we're certain. We work together, huh? Do you think he's just like, oh, Paul, M-O-D? You think there's a little extra connotation there? A little double entendre? Maybe, yeah. maybe we keep Stilgar, the old guy, as a secondary? <laughs> <laughs> I kind of like, I like where you go with yeah. that. I just also like, it kind of highlighting too of a, maybe even saying like, that way, if you die, we still get the worm. I think it's also another way you can sort of read that. Yeah, I think totally. I'm just like, we just still need the boon for the tribe. Of, uh, it's like, you don't just do this because like, we're going to use the worm. Yeah, like, regardless. I'm just going to go in circles for the next like five hours. Like, no. Well, well, kind of actually. Really? That, that is sort of what like, that's what well, Paul gets the right. He could take this to the south on that 20 thumper journey. That's going to waste this worm. And even Stilgar says like, I could turn us back at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. Paul's like, well, we're still going to go because I'm a bratty little bitch. And <laughs> but it is up to the writer, Mike. That's just how the right goes. Yeah. So this legendary worm is just wasted on nothing but uh, a joy ride through the desert. <laughs> Have fun. I mean, do you think he? Um, do you think he does that knowing that, like, if he did go to uh, this uh, this Razia against like some Harkonnens or whatever that? That would build up an even bigger legend. Like Muad'Dib summoned the legendary worm. They went and they took all of this. Ooh, um, you think maybe, that's in the back of his mind? Kind of, let's let's cross that right when we okay, get there. Right, okay, right. Uh, that is a great question to bring up, though, because uh, with this though, so what do we have? Um, oh yeah, telling him to we all work together. That being the highlighting mm. thing. Still, then he he slaps Paul's shoulder, 
And I think that, okay, we're building that camaraderie back up because these are like, there's a lot of things going on at once, but ultimately we're brothers. We're part of this tribe. Right. And this is your like day. You've become a man. It's your only mm. birthday we've really spent together and in a proper way. Um, so then Stilgar, he goes back into teaching the mode with his kind of harsher voice. And he asks Paul, like, what side of the worm they're on? Be like, Ooh, right, this lesson's again, going to go into that call response. Y- yeah, exactly. And we learn about the scales. Yeah. So what did we learn about the scales? So, all right. So we got scales and ring segments. Are the ring sem- segments composed of scales? Yes. Do you remember what each ring segment is composed of or what it was made of when uh, the whole sandworm formed? Oh, Jesus. I forget. They're the sand trout. So each of the scales is basically that sand trout. Jesus. All flattened out and like. That's so Whatever transformation weird process and it goes awesome. through. Yeah. They're just layers of they sand trout. They're the weirdest creatures in the world. I love them. Uh, so yeah, they, then, it, but then they take on whatever the scale form is and they kind of change through the life of the worm where, uh, it does seem like you can lose the scale and regrow a scale. There must be some process for that. Mm-hmm. And then the ones in the bottom are going to change, con- uh, compared to the ones on the top. The bottom ones get larger. Larger. Why do they get larger? Do they get stretched out? Stretch marks on the worm? Yeah, maybe. Or just building up sort of like, um... A resistance? Yeah, so calluses yeah. almost? Callus was going to be the word still in mind for me, yeah. Heavier and smoother. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah, I guess maybe. Kind of just, yeah, squirt So out. help them glide a little bit more. I don't know. I don't know. It must just must be better for something. <laughs> and then uh, I don't know why the top ones are a little bit smaller then. Uh, maybe it's with, like, the top ones get replaced more often? I, I don't know. I don't they're know why catching, would they would need to be. I don't know. They're coming up into the air. Fremen keep pulling them up for well, sure. I mean... Hiding sand if, underneath If you have them? the pull of gravity, I guess that's why the bottom ones, like, you know, like, that's the bottom because that's the one that's, like, always closer to the core. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. Or could maybe be, maybe like this a, is... Could be, like, a thermal thing, too. It could be a thermal thing. Yeah. Or maybe this is just how sandworms have evolved by Fremen constantly using them over millennia. Yeah. Of, like, we ride them, and when we ride them, we, you know... We skid on top of the sand. They need to be. They <laughs> oh, need to be used to that. It's the Fremen's fault. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bring them to the surface. Why not? I like it. Yeah, yeah. And maybe it's not like yeah, just giving to the bottom, but like giving a little relief to the top. Right, we, right. We don't fully the top as often. Which I guess is maybe not necessarily true either, because the worm is on its side right now, right? Uh, because he mean? sees to like its left, it's got big scales. To so its right, it's got small. So this worm's on its side. No, but we're gonna fix that right away. Oh, okay. So you do fix it. Yeah. This is just giving more. Uh, more evidence, I think, to that theory. Yeah. So right from this, Paul starts some pretty fancy maneuvering. Maneuvering once he like sees that this uh, worm is sort of oriented. Where mm-hmm. yeah, it's like it's on an awkward side. The worm is probably having like uh, the spins right now, right? Uh, you've disoriented it. So Paul motions to the flankers, and they start opening the left segments, and this keeps it on a straight course while the worm rolls. So we're going in a straight line, but we're rotating the whole worm. And so everyone's just shuffling over on it. we got it. some engineers here. Yeah, and that's why I think you do have a line of people all yelling, huh, hock, 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 all left, 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 left. And we're gotcha. all like sidestepping. We're all moving our hooks. That's why you do need to have a, it's not for the worm's benefit. It's for everyone else's benefit to control the worm. Of what, the yelling? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, we're not telling the worm. Love a bridle in that bad boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're telling the people where to put the hooks, which in turn when you to- communicate to the worm. When you told me there was, like, a command for, like, left and right for the worm, I was just like, would the oh. worm understand that? <laughs> like, I, I always thought that was kind of weird, but, like, this makes a lot more sense. Yeah, you would think we, I mean, they do feel vibrations, so, like, I can see how we can, might get there one day. I mean, yeah. <laughs> if you can make something. Trick the worm. Up. Yeah, you put like <laughs> some sonic probes. Your breath javelin air, just like throwing thumpers out into the desert. <laughs> <laughs> that would be really cool. 
I love a javelin here. We don't get a gun, but we'll throw throw the motherfucker. Um, But so with these people in, we have these two steersmen, and they all start calling. They go, ak He shouted in the traditional call. So ak is the left turn. And dirch is right. Dirch is right. And then hi-yo is the command for action. Ooh. So you'd say left, go, and that's how they know to actually do it. Versus if you're gonna like say like get ready to turn left or maybe something like that, you have a no, you have one to actually say like and do it. Now in a majestic circle, the maker turned to protect its open segments. Full around it came, and when it was headed back to the south, Paul shouted, "Jairat," and Jairat is straight ahead. Ah, yes. Again, because there's no, yeah, you said there's, you can't go backwards on a worm. You can't go backwards, yeah. There's no blinking red light for the worm. Shimmy, shimmy, shimmy. <laughs> and, uh, what would happen if a worm just started freaking out and like doing its dumping thing where it slams its head on the ground? I mean, all the fremen would die. <laughs> <laughs> what else do you think would happen? <laughs> I'm just thinking, why doesn't it do that? Like, rah! It must be the segment being open. Because, again, like, when it slams into the sand, its segments are all closed. Right. Okay. It's just this aversion to sand is so strong, it overwhelms all the power of this beast. It's, like, such It basically subdues thing. a god. You op- it's, like, it's like putting a fish in uh, a lake and be like, but don't, don't breathe in any of that water. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah or, or like if you open the scale of the fish, it would go to the surface. Like, yeah, yeah, Adam, it's <laughs> like, like it's a little weird, right? Yeah, yeah, it completely it weird. It somehow it completely negates the everything about this creature. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's a little overpowered, I'll give you, but we just accept it. Uh, okay, yeah, I don't okay. get why, why don't they go buck wild and just like if you're thinking. I mean, you know, even like a little bronking of some sort to like whip off, you know, try to whip your scale back into place or something. Right, right, right. Like, yeah, it doesn't seem like they put up a struggle at all outside of a, I guess I'm going to go this way for a little bit until it it's feels got, better. I just feel like there's got to be some reason for it, you know? <laughs> you want there to be so yeah. bad. Now, uh, as we're going, uh, what is it? Stilgard, he tells Paul, very good. Uh, with plenty of practice, you may yet become a sand rider. Mm. Paul's just like, son of a bitch, wasn't I the first one up here? <laughs> Excuse me? Did I not just... <laughs> Am I not riding this word? <laughs> Am I not riding the sand? <laughs> um, Paul's being a little cheeky. I mean, he's still a teenager. Let's be honest here. Well... Late teens? No, it, I think it's that, that division between, like, I've trained the death commandos. And you're Fair. giving me shit for riding a worm. Of like, yeah. you know what I'm capable That's of, Stilgar. And like, you just right now, you really want to highlight how unfremen I am in some ways. Because that's all Stilgar is doing, right? He's undermining Paul the Fremen. No. He's undermining Usal. Well, that's that's what Paul is thinking. But Stilgar makes it clear, I'm doing my job. And you don't think Stilgar is capable of two meanings? I think he is. I think he's definitely more least- intelligent. Yeah, yeah. Have to do that. But is, at the end of the day, equal of Jessica. It's like I'm telling you how you're fucking up, and I'm not gonna let you get by just because you're Paul Moadib. Yeah, I'll give you. He's not choosing like empty reasons to attack. Him, right. But I think he's still being opportunistic. Well, to we go back a, like, to our we beginning. Get a little bit of well, sarcasm here to hit too. into our beginning quote. Here, he's taking those opportunities. Oh, so I to kind of preserve I, his I didn't own think station. About applying that to Stilgar instead of Paul. I I think Stilgar's the one you got to. He is orthodoxy. Paul isn't. Or, there's nothing orthodox about Paul in any <laughs> manner, right? Like in every you choose any facet of him. Mm-hmm. No, he's gone against the grain. That's of the everything. whole point of Atreides, really. Of well, of, not Leto. Leto was orthodox, um, like Landsrat. Yeah, I guess he or was Landsrat. Like, you know, orthodox. like orthodox uh, Imperium kind of. Yeah, game. yeah. No, you make a good point there. 
in a way, I, I kind of feel like I can couch every other person except for Paul in some manner. Well, Paul's weird, man. Definitely is. <laughs> um, but you were dead right where it is like Stilgar, he's doing his job. Mm-hmm. And he's doing it well because he is a good naive. Now, there's laughter from the Fremen behind. And Stilgar <gasps> makes this comment like, oh, like a throw. But they also start chanting more deep to the wind. Which is like, that's them reading the situation. Be like, we know what you're both talking about. Fight, fight, fight. <laughs> I'm like, we're just going to chant them. They're, they're passing water coins or water rings for some reason. Yeah. I don't get it. <laughs> Taking them. Ooh, ooh, who, who's Farouk put his money on? Oh. You don't want to know. We made a decision yet. Now, the youth, they want Paul to challenge Stilgar. We know this from last chapter. We're getting the, uh, allusions to it now. Now, the way um, the, oh, I'm sorry, way on the ass end of the worm now, Mike. Yeah. Got to get back to the good part of, uh, we hear these goaders feeding the tail segments. And with that, they start to pick up speed and the worm goes faster. So, <laughs> Slap that ass. <laughs> yeah. All I know of a goat is what you know. It's, you know, it's a spiky stick kind of deal. So yeah. they're just bashing that tail with something. Whether- well, when I think of like. Uh, like the noun for goad, like the verb to goad something, mm-hmm. it's like to get its to attention, pro- to provoke it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. like they're they're literally you're right, poking it with a stick and making it go a little faster. Yeah, I imagine doing I something even, with their maker hooks. Or I think they're just lifting up segments with the maker hooks. I don't think that would do anything though. No. Well, well what, like that wouldn't make it go. What would that do? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, granted, I don't really... I've never ridden the worm, Derek. Yeah, I don't I know. Guess. I'm sorry. I'm supposed to just tell you. Well, <laughs> you're wrong. Uh, no, I, I, I'm not sure. I don't really even know what the tail exactly looks like because it's not like, really fully described. Even, but Like, how can you go to it? Because it's in, like impervious to most like <laughs> right? weapons. Maybe you pry it up and you poke it? I don't know. I or guess. Jam something under? It could be some combination of it. But nonetheless, the harder you hit it, the faster that worm goes. And you feel it in the front. All right. And it starts running. Uh, and that's pretty awesome. Just seems like a weird kind of, uh, there's no answer there. Yeah, no. That I can ever think of. Just glossed over. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's like he probably was going to come back to it, but uh, next book, next <laughs> book. <laughs> and then he died. <laughs> and I got chair dogs instead. Now, chair dogs. Paul looks back. He sees this whole troop kind of stretch out behind him, and he sees Cheney's face, uh, particularly within the troop. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sort of turns still to st- back to Stilgar and asks him if uh, he is a sand rider now because the sand rider gets to choose the destination. Mm-hmm. Stilgar tells him, yes, you are, you are. And Paul tells him, and am I a Fremen born this day here in the Hibayana Erg? I have had no life before this day. I was a child until this day. <laughs> Stilgar's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Definitely not a child. Yeah, well, even that again, I think it's kind of a quib and like a little, like, throw a little I, sand in his I th- eyes. I think a little bit. Just say, but he's also stating the facts. Or like, when we found you, you're not a, like, normal child. Mm-hmm. But, but again, that's why it is a kind of insult. Of like, you're supposed to be a child. Yeah. The fact that you are a man is sort of like... I think that's the, the double entendre. The disrespectful of part of it. Uh, but Paul, he... He's like, let's just gloss by us. Oh, yeah, yeah. He's like, man, we, I kind of want to call you out at this point, but I'm going to let it pass. And uh, do you, Oh, do you think that Stilgar's trying to goad him? Oh, oh, what do you think, Mike? You tell me. I don't know, because I'm, I'm still not quite sure on Stilgar's place in things. I think Stilgar might actually think that Paul 
should take over leadership. I was sort of going to ask you I think you he's then trying to, to get Paul to initiate it because he even says uh, a little bit later, like, do you want to get the leaders together? Right, right, exactly. I'll even call the I'll... leaders together, even though Paul doesn't answer. I was going to see if you wanted to frame it as, like, for the betterment of the tribe. I think that, that kind Silver of might be trying to do that. Or he's having that thought. I mean, he just gave him the last right, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He yeah. needed to. Now, Paul, being in control of this worm, being the sand rider for the day, he is determined to take this worm south. He wants to see the land they make. And he tells them, and I would see my son and my family. I need time now to consider the future that is the past within my mind. The turmoil comes, and if not where I can unravel it, the thing will run wild. So that is why mm. I said I think he's using his son as a, an excuse. It's like front. 20 thumpers. That'll give me time to think. Cause like, I just haven't had time to think. Right. And I love the use of the future. That is the past within my mind. So these are all things he's seen. We still have that gray storm area that we had described uh, two chapters yeah. ago, right? That he can't get through. But right now it seems like Paul kind of has a plan. He had a glimmer of a way to get through this. He um, sees some hope. He does. And uh, Stilgar is looking at Paul. Paul is staring at Cheney, though. And his words are kind of stir excitement in the entire troop, being like what Paul had just said. Stilgar tells Paul that the men are eager to raid with him. You know, the, the, is it the Fadaikin want to raid with you up in the north and the sinks and the pans? We could go there right now. Paul's like, look, I've already raided the Fadaikin, and I will once more <laughs> until not a yeah. single Harkonnen breathes Arakeen air. I'm like, man, you've been working on your threats, Paul. You've had some time. Yeah. And uh, Paul uh, realizes that Stilgar is looking at this from the uh, prism of how Stilgar ascended to the uh, position of Naib. Within yeah, which his you told CH. us about a little bit. Yeah, where he followed him out into the night. And it mm. was very much like the, his commander knew what was happening and sort of made Stilgar run the gauntlet of like a few things. You're going to go up this erg, you're going to run down this ridge and kind of tired himself out before yeah. Stilgar got there. Like, made you work for the sun because I knew you were going to beat me in battle no matter what. And uh, that's what Paul's sort of seeing go within mind. And again, the orthodoxy of how uh, Stilgar views all this. He's going to see that naive is like ironclad. The laws surrounding it need to occur. They need to happen. And uh, that Stilgar has read the reports of the unrest among the youth, Paul is pretty much sure of now, too. Mm -hmm. That's the final thing we needed for all of us to be like, okay, Paul, Jessica, Stilgar, all on the same page. They yeah. at least all know what's happening, but they haven't coordinated outside <laughs> of like before this event. We feel like Stilgar and Jessica had a sidebar. We know Paul I and think Jessica they have definitely had, a had to have had a sidebar. We know like Tharthar and Hara probably have. Yeah. I mean, you know, everyone sort of like um, dealt with this on the side, but we don't know who's going to come out on top. So Stilgar asked Paul if he wants him to convene a council, and uh, the troops know exactly what that means. Like, if we're going to go to the south, do I need to have all the leaders meet us down there then? Is everybody just going to do this down there? How many leaders are there, by the way? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. How many Sietches are there? Is it like one leader per Sietch? There's one Naib per Sietch. And then I I don't know how we divvy up beyond that. But didn't... Isn't Silgar like, somewhat ascended from the regular just, like, Sietch Tavar Naib? Isn't he sort of, like, taking Liet's place in a way? Uh, no, no one has taken like Liet's place. Oh, I thought he—I thought it mentioned that he did. Mm-mm. No, no, we're gonna we're gonna get, get to the stuff like that. We're gonna flesh out. Okay, pretty much like no one has filled Liet's shoes yet. Liet is the only one who is like sir, mastered all Fremen. 
No one else has really assumed that. God, I'm so pissed about his death now. Yeah, it, it was a very, it was a very unique role because it was that, um, you know, both outside and inside the mm-hmm. Imperium sort of thing, where he made that position for himself. It was different from the normal Naib. Right. Uh, but no, it's not that every Fremen uh, goes to Stilgar, but I think a lot of Fremen would listen to Stilgar. Do you think a lot of people see, like, the parallels between, like, uh, Usul? Or, no, he's uh, he's Moadib among the Fremen, right? Or is yeah, it... Moadib among yeah. the Fremen. Usul at yeah, uh, exactly. Tabar. Yeah. Tabar. So do you think they would see Moadib and see, like, oh, like, he's, like, Liet, like, you know, born of two worlds, more or less, or, like, part of two worlds? Um, Even though it's not like real, no, not no. A, D- disregard the two words. It's more the Lisan Mati that is. It's like, all about the prophecy. Yeah, that's okay. that's his shoe in. I think what makes it's it's an even different station from what Liet has, but it would be overarching like Liet was. Whereas like Stilgar, I think he could only command the ones that wanted to respect him in the way that you kind of get a naive, where it's like mm-hmm. everyone has to acknowledge you are, and they do. Otherwise, uh, other tribes can come and go as they please. Do you think a giant sandworm is part of the Mahdi prophecy? Uh, no, but it is now. It's now part. It's part <laughs> of the little pencil I think It's part of the legend, not part yeah. of the prophecy. Okay, right? Like okay. if they, we can give it like a past and present kind right, of. Right, right. Uh, and when the when the prophet came, he summoned. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they can never be separated. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I don't think it was there before. I think everything we heard was pretty much it before. You make a good point, though. This worm is kind of wasted. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we it, take this two thumper worm. We just like honestly, plow it when we get to the end, let it sulk. It's probably the only reason the smugglers saw it. It was so damn big, <laughs> like, <laughs> a mile and a half long. What the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna go look at that. That's oh huge. my god. Um, but carrying on with this, um, Stilgar asking, "Do we gotta convene the council?" Paul sidesteps this and he tells Stilgar, "You cannot guess what I wish." It's like, ooh, okay, give me a little enigmatic. And Paul knows that losing control of these people is not an option to him. Uh, sorry, just quick sidebar. Yeah. Remind me later. I got a worm theory thing I need to talk to you about because I have a big question. Ooh, okay. Big hole in things, but on, continue. On pod or off pod? Oh, on pod. Obviously. Oh, okay. I, I honestly didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I just don't want to interrupt the flow, which gotcha. I have just done. So continue. Yes. Um, so Paul sidesteps this and tells Stogar, you cannot guess what I want. Yeah, Paul being a little enigmatic mm. here because Paul knows that losing control of the people is not an option. He's not even willing to entertain that. But for some reason, he's like, I'm going to check to see if I don't have to kill you real quick. Well, going through some futures. and To a point, Paul's mm. not even quite sure what he wants. Or like he knows what he wants. He just doesn't know how to get it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And that's the story of Paul's life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's like the curse of his power. He can see what he wants, but he, there's always something in between mm-hmm. getting there. That's just like, crap, this power but like, is But it's also so much more on a macro scale than mm-hmm. anything else. It's not like, uh, like what does Stilgar want on a macro scale? They want uh, the betterment of the tribes. They want to see Dune flourish into a more habitable area, make things better for their future generations. Mm-hmm. Kill the Harkonnens, anyone that wants to like get in the Fremen's way. I, that's honestly a cherry on top sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. But like with Paul, it's so much bigger. Mm-hmm. It's like we've gone planet to planet to planet. We've like, we've seen guild Highlanders going between uh, systems. We know there's an emperor of like thousands of worlds. Yeah. For the Fremen, like, it feels like the world is just so much smaller sometimes in his mind, even though it is, like, maybe a 100,000 times harder than any other experience you could possibly have within this vast universe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, I, I almost 
it's by intention, right? It's like built into their cultures and how they all yeah. evolved. We're like, that is the goal of the Fremen. That has been their dream. I'm just like, we don't want to have to worry about anything outside of like RCH, essentially. Right, right, right. It's the goal. But you guys keep coming to our planet and sticking your noses in our business. <laughs> they would love nothing more. Uh, that makes for a great comparison to make where they both have these completely different worldviews on scale. Mm-hmm. We're like, yeah, one is so small and one is so mind-bogglingly large. Yeah. And Paul is weighing so many other people's interests, too, in for- going forward. Because on a big on a big level, he is trying to do what's best for humanity, too. Because ultimately, the jihad is what really is And that's uh, like, that affects so much more than just the Fremen culture. Yeah, it's, every, it's the entire Imperium. There's yeah. no coming back from what Paul sees happening. It's bigger than the Butlerian jihad in a lot of ways. Question for you, and th- I think this might mainly be speculation unless you know that it is different. Ooh, okay. We knew that he could see about a year ahead pretty accurately. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, how do you think that's changed as he's aged? Uh, considerably. We're going to be approaching a chapter where Paul remarks on the changes in his spice, uh, like how the diet affects his powers. Mm-hmm. And I think we can maybe play with that when we get there, of like okay. how his other powers have changed. Cool, but cool. Uh, I don't have anything too direct for that very specific example. All you right, wrote. sure, sure, sure. But uh, definitely how spice and prescience work in him is is different from that time. I'm just like none wondering of, what the scope of this like response is that he has. Yeah, none of those rules from like two years ago you can really apply to now. You have, okay. you have to assume they're always in flux. I didn't really know what they were anyways, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, <I do. laughs> just throw that paper up. Like, <laughs> you were just making them up. Yeah. Uh, at least Frank does every now and then. So we got this difference in scale for Paul and Stogar. Mm-hmm. We also know that Jessica, Hara, and Tharthar had their own kind of plans. Yeah. We can, uh, we'll, we'll address the scale of those at some other time, all on different levels themselves. Paul, though, he's going to stick with going south, even while Stilgar is kind of doing this, uh, do I have to do the council, yada, yada. Yeah. And then even Stilgar pushes back, too, when Paul says that, and he's like, well, even if I say we shall turn back to the north when the day is over, I'm like, wow, dick move, Stilgar. You know it's he gets to say where we're yeah. going. Just let him go to the south. Like, my were my rules. <laughs> yeah. And Ultimately. Paul, Paul sticks to it. It's like, no, we're going south. Uh, and a sense of inevitable dignity enfolded Stilgar as he pulled his robe tightly around him. Just like, oh. Uh, inevitable dignity. How dope a sentence. That it, it just like foreboding within itself. This is mm. Stilgar being like, very well. Like, you're... You've set the course. Like I, yeah. he thinks he's going to a duel at this point. I mean, like Silgar probably like, woke up saying, "Like I'm probably going to die today." Yeah, or not probably. Like I'm going to die today. This is going to be the end of my. Role. I I hope he phrased it as like I'm going to make Moadib bleed, and then just that's all. <laughs> that's all. He's got to do a little bit better than Jameis. I won't dance around like you did with <laughs> yeah. Jameis. You're having a pep talk in the mirror. <laughs> you know. Oh my. If. Okay. I just want to put it to that. If they did fight, like, Stilgar's charging him first off. Oh, right? I bet. I think just right in there. He's going to get into your face. And it's not going to be like a dance and a jump and a leap no. and a hand switch. Like, it's going to be like a tiger coming at you. It's like, almost like a, a bull, if you will. <gasps> he might win, they might. <laughs> There's a chance. <laughs> um, but continuing on with Stilgar here, I find it weird that he tells Paul there will be a gathering. I will send the message. That was my point earlier where, like, Paul didn't say yes to it. He was going to, like, give that decision to Paul to make. Ooh, okay. You think he but had to get Paul the out? Paul said, like, oh, no, we're going to go south. We're going to do this. Like, very well. I will call a, a gathering regardless. 
that, I just think it's interesting that he even like takes that as a yes or a no of like, I, I don't know. I found it just uh, very imposing and sort of like a power play. Uh, it is a yeah. power play, but like, I don't think it's more of an intimidation power play. I think it's more along the lines of Stilgar has a plan. Mm-hmm. I think, I think that I'm spot on that like his plan is to put Moadib as the leader of the Fremen. Because he thinks it'll be ultimately better for the Fremen as a whole, not just the CH Tabar, yeah, but all of the Fremen on Arrakis. I I love your reasoning for it, and I definitely I gotta agree with you that it's it's his plan, yeah, because like he is doing this outside of it. So like, and this is something Jessica didn't mention and Paul didn't mention. So like, I don't know what Stilgar thinks is in the cards, but he's like at least like this is the road I'm going down, and doesn't flinch from it, doesn't mm. regret it. Uh, it's just wild. Uh, now. Paul lets uh, Stilgar think he will call him out. He's just like, gonna let this. Well, fine. You want to keep brooding over this? Like, I'll just let you think about this. <laughs> like, I have Stilgar, other things I to think it. about. <laughs> yeah. Paul's got a lot more important shit to mm. deal with. So he'll just let him do that. And uh, Paul has already decided on some course of action concerning Stilgar. That's the impression I got there. Yeah. So. Paul's got a plan too, but he's not letting us know what it is. And yeah, as cocky as all the trainees are, his is the That's right plan. Motherfucker. He's, like, he's like, I chose the perfect plan. I'm just like, you tell us, tell us. <laughs> um, but Paul is telling us right now that he wants to walk a certain line in his vision that will um, bring him to some certain point from which he will be on a, uh, he will be able to unravel everything the way he wants. And it is just that vaguely worded for us. Uh, we have no idea what that means. But he saw a line through that storm of prescience. Mm-hmm. And if he can just walk this line, he doesn't know exactly where it leads, but it will bring I, him to the this center This makes me point. think of like a sailor out at sea mm-hmm. and like storms raging, but you see the lighthouse beacon. Yeah. And that's what I imagine with Paul right now. But replace all the water with sand. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, throw that boat out, make it a worm, and yeah. you got yourself a storm. <laughs> Yeah, no, no, he's in the middle of uh, something turbulent. And mm-hmm. yeah, he thinks he can get there and this will be where I can solve it. He can, he thinks he sees a way to get out of the jihad. Yeah. And now I wonder though, is killing Stilgar one of the ways out of the jihad? I don't think so. Yeah? I think that that would just reinforce it more. See, I'm thinking that he sees it as one of the options, but he so doesn't want to do that route. Mm. on like a personal level that he's like looking and he's like, I'm going to put that decision off as long as like, you know, as long as he can see a way that he doesn't have to do it. But as soon as that door fully closes, he will take whatever opportunity. Now, how do you think that relates to the opening quote of, uh, applying it to Paul? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I saw it very much more from like the Stilgar kind of thing where like it would just be Stilgar being sacrificed. No, I, def- I definitely found that um, for Stilgar. I, I don't know how I would apply it to Paul. How, are you seeing a way that it would? Well, it's funny because like originally I thought about the quote and I applied it to Paul for mm-hmm. this whole thing. I didn't even think about applying it to Stilgar. But like even with my theory now, I'm just like, it's definitely applied to Stilgar. Like how can it not be? <laughs> But, like, I still, like, have all these thoughts about it being applied to Paul. Mm-hmm. Where, like, he ultimately has the decision, do I keep things as they are for, like, my own benefit? Or do I go this other way for the benefit of humanity? Oh, sure. You know what? And, yeah, it would have totally applied to him the same way, but just the opposite incentive, yeah. right? Because he wants it to be progressive. Exactly. He wants to change it. Yeah. Oh, so you think that's what he's... You devil, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then he does it. Yeah. Um... But Paul, his thought continues here of like, yeah, I will not call him out if it can be helped, he thought. If there's another way to prevent the jihad, 
that's where I'm entertaining that idea of like, I think he sees it of like killing Stogar is one of the ways. Mm-hmm. If there's another way to prevent the jihad, dot, 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 we get a little ellipsis there. Oh, so man. that to me implies one way is me dropping you right here, right now. And for whatever reason. It's part to kick off a worm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what a cheap shot. Like, and I, uh, duel. Pump. You, won't, like, you won't get a cheap shot of me like James. Ah! <laughs> that would be so hilarious. <laughs> so bad, though. He'd become legendary for it. <laughs> yeah. Everything's a legend. Um, but Stogar, he tells Paul where to stop for the evening meal and prayer. And Mike, this is where a point of contention arose for me. Okay. Because we're stopping at a cave. A cave of birds. Yeah, it not, says cave of birds, yeah. not brids not like brids. Uh, before. No. no. No, I'm willing to bet that that was just a typo. No, no, not at all. I don't think it's a typo. You think it's a different place? No, I think it's the same place. I do think, though, so that is a map. That is like the hand-drawn map. And I'm wondering, this is me just drawing from like uh, the Lawrence of Arabia story I had, where in Seven Pillars of Wisdom... Uh, he commented on how you know, I mentioned to you there were multiple translations of from yeah. Arabic into English before we had a set like um, sure, sure. standard to go by, and so maps were one of the really difficult things because people would spell uh, words differently uh, mm. for like a valley. I think was like an adi or something. Uh, so like really relying on that obscure like depiction of the landscape. Yeah, well, and just vernacular spellings of like oh that's or like, fe- this I'm sorry is probably fe- phonetic similar? spelling. Yeah, okay. yeah, so it'd be like well this town could have three different spellings that are wildly different and then you'd be like i don't know what the hell we're attacking <laughs> just go roughly birds. here yeah so birds and brids i can see that of being like maybe somewhere in old fremen it was called brids because it was an obviously an old word for birds as we dug up well no because uh Jacobs is an ancient language right yeah but brids was not Jacobs. <laughs> don't even don't even don't give frank that out well, he was an ancient language <laughs> no but yeah, uh, I just read that. I was like, what the fuck? We went through all the, I, you know, and I doubled back thinking I was wrong. We went by the map, Cave of Riches, Cave of Ridges. I don't know what's real anymore is all I'm saying. <laughs> um, That's I fair. Know, I don't know anything. That's fair. Now, Habayana Ridge, though. I know that. That's where we're going for the evening meal and the prayer. Okay. And this is basically like uh, one of the borders to the southern desert, we can kind of imagine. Mm-hmm. It's one of those peripheral landmarks where you're like, once you're here, desert, deep desert is beyond and the normal imperial this desert. This is happening above. the same t- like simultaneously with the last chapter we read. Uh, where it's ladies' night and they're talking about things like we know that Paul's like doing his yeah, test right now. I would even say... They have the evening prayer. I would... E- oh, awesome catch. Yes. Yeah. So they're going on their way. They're going to have their evening prayer as well, then continue onward. Yeah. Oh, man. I would not have caught that. I knew. Ah, I knew. Well, just they said the day of. So I would have brought you back to the beginning of the first chapter. But you were totally right. We're syncing up with the end now because we're going to stop for our evening prayer. Awesome. Uh, But with this, Mike, we also get an answer to a question you had of uh, how how damn long is the thumper? Yeah. 20 thumpers? About 10 days and nights. Okay, so a thumper, a worm lasts you about half a day. Yep, I would say hopefully this worm is like a full day. So we'll say about eight hours-ish per worm? Yeah, 12. 12? Yeah, if we're going to, like half a day. I mean, doesn't we're splitting hairs of... Uh, well, I mean, like you're going to want to rest at some point, right? For, what? You don't fall asleep on a moving worm, do you? That sounds folly. Uh, no, but you could ride. No, wait, wait. You just, no, you ride for eight hours. You rest during the night. You stop asleep. What are you, what are you taking a nap on a worm for? We don't get a... We, well, they, okay, they normally sleep during the day and walk at night. Yeah. 
But we know that like they changed up their schedule for riding the worm. No, no, no. For the right. For the right. When you first, you have to ride it in the sun to show that you're not afraid. Okay. We're we're showing the gods. So, so like you know, yeah. The, oh, yeah. I like that showing like both gods, Allah yeah. and Shai Halud. We're dominating. Oh yeah, my god! Yeah. Telling Allah, I don't fear you, and Shai Halud, you're my beast. You're like I ride <laughs> you're you. my bitch. <laughs> I was gonna say beast. It did, I did not intend to go down that <laughs> that's road. That's what it sounded like you're going <laughs> okay. with. That's not, you, know, that's you never not, tell God you're that's your not bitch. out of character. I'll yeah. give you, but uh, yeah, uh, and it's sort of like dominating both of those. Whereas, like normally though, they would ride during the night and they would just bring the word up and they, we'd be going at night. Okay, sleeping but like the they're day. they're in a weird schedule right now. So like, what do you? How do you think they're going to do that? What do you mean? Like, are they going to just have this oh. weird sleep schedule now for the next ten days if they're going? No, like, no, no. I think you just you spend the next day and a half like getting back into schedule. Okay. Like I you would I would assume you would adapt back as soon as possible because one, what if you were attacked? You want to be right back to the normal scheme of things. Man, like, riding a worm for like eight, twelve hours sounds rough. That does. Yeah. I mean that's not fun. No. But well, you know what? I mean, horseback riding sucked too back in the day. Like, yeah, yeah. Or like that's riding brutal. a camel, but have you ever this, ridden a horse? No, no. It's hard. Yeah. I Especially imagine. if your hips aren't like used to like sitting like that. Yeah, I mean, you end up, uh, what the guy I worked with uh, in Puerto Rico, he had horses his whole life. He walked a little bow-legged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he just had that, like, little gat to him. I was just oh, like... Oh, man. I mean, that's certainly like a rich man's disease now. Um, my first time riding a horse was horrifying. Yeah? How'd yeah. it go? Oh, my sister was a horse rider, and it's like, okay, do you want to take me, learn how to ride a horse? I'm like, all right, we'll do that, Laura. It'll, it'll be a fun little trip. A little bonding experience. A little bonding experience. It's like, all right, first we're going to do, like, a small little, like, canter. Like, okay. Like, hanging on. Granted, this horse was bareback at the time, too. Like, didn't put it on a saddle. It's like, oh, I'll just get it from the pasture. We'll hop on and do this. Like, okay, Laura. Whatever you say. It's intimidating being on the back of one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Big beast. So, little canter. Doing a little trot. I was like, okay, this is pretty fast. And she's like, no, it's not that fast. Then we start galloping. (laughs) I'm like, no, I don't want to do this. And uh, I can't hang on. Like, all you have to hang on with is the mane if you don't have a saddle. Oh, you got to use your thighs, right? You can try. Yeah. But, like, I'm not stretchy like that. Okay. <laughs> this was a big animal. It's like trying to do the splits almost. Do, do you go like, off? Or? Oh, I, like, uh, I started falling off, and there was, like, a tree oncoming as well. So I grabbed onto the tree oh. and, like, slapped myself off the tree. Like, yeah, I'm back upright. And it went flying towards the other side of the horse. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. It's right. I tried to, like, hit a tree again, but I hit it too soon. I sort of clotheslined myself to the tree and spun around the tree. <laughs> I went off the horse. Okay, okay. Yeah. That, that seemed to be the one goal, though. So <laughs> It was the time. It was one problem to another problem. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, getting off a horse is a bitch. <laughs> that was the most painful way to do it, I think. Oh, that's awesome. You got a tree. <laughs> the classic, like, God, uh, that happened. Two to, trees, even. To, yeah, it took a, you had to learn. You had to learn. <laughs> the legend. That's just a classic from, like, a old movie. When they're just, like, running, you grab the tree that's and That's what it felt up, like, um, yeah. Oh, no. No, no. no not as easy as it looks. <laughs> no. <laughs> Tried. That's awesome. No, I've never done a horse ride. Never weird. ridden a horse since then. Um, <laughs> hey, we should go back one day. Maybe one day. We'll do a thing. I'd be down to ride a horse. Right. I really want to ride a camel, though. That'd be cool. That'd be really cool. Not, it'd be strange, just because it's weirder, I guess. It's, it's yeah. a space animal. Yeah. yeah. Space animal. <laughs> Whoa. That's how we do space names. It's just something I haven't <laughs> seen, right? Now, getting us back on. We, uh, Paul, he's already gone down to the south in his dreams. 
So he tells us what it would be like, uh, where you'd be one day, there would just be this color change on the horizon and this green would start to emerge. And then you would suddenly be at the new Seattle and you'd be down there. Uh, and he does have to dream about it because it's not going to happen today. Right. We're not going to see it happen at the very least. Nope. Stilgar turns to Moadib and he says, does my decision suit Moadib? And this is going to be referring to calling up that council of being like, right. we're challenging each other. <clears throat> <laughs> and only the faintest touch of sarcasm tinged his voice, but to Fremen ears around them, alert to every tone in a bird's cry or a Cialago's piping message, heard the sarcasm and watched Paul to see what he would do. Did you hear the sarcasm? I did. It was biting. Yeah. How about you? It yeah, comes through I... in the audiobook. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul tells him, Stilgar heard me swear my loyalty to him when we we consecrated the Fadaiken. My death commandos know I spoke with honor. Does Stilgar doubt it? Now, before we go any further, this is the little textual lines of the Fadaiken were created. Uh, By Paul. In that two-year period. Yeah. It always says my Fadaiken. Mm-hmm, it does. And so now I get, like, consecrated. I think he personally trained them, not Lady Jessica. I think Paul yeah. trained those ones. Most certainly. Well, yeah. uh... She she would have had a hand in it. Would he? I mean, like, how much more does she have to teach him when it comes to? Well, again, like, so she taught Paul, right? She's gonna always know a little bit more, right? Like, that's Paul's master. I mean, yeah. And ultimately, she is like the arbiter on that. And I think even if you were gonna like um, just want to say Paul did it because Paul's so special, I just think her debilitating uh, Stilgar requires like well you better show these people so that they both believe you beat me like right. you guys need to know how tough she is so no one challenges me as naive this should be like a known fact among us um but it is definitely paul through and through but consecrated also is very religious of a word so that thinks makes me think jessica had to be evolved on that level too of like you would definitely bring the reverend mother right. in right to consecrate these holy death commandos how many battle reverend mothers do you think they ever have because <laughs> um, Lady Jessica's a battle reverend mother. That is true. That How is many true. reverend mothers do you see that completely like put a naive on their ass? Oh, uh, probably in their early. Oh, well, no, they wouldn't have like Jessica's training. So I don't know. Not that many. I don't think. Just up saying. At, up until now. You know, besides Mapes, I'm sure Mapes said like. She, she, <laughs> she could have chosen any job she wanted in Fremen society and she chose her career. Mapes is just a weird combination of James Bond and Austin Powers in the sands. Right, like specifically Mini Me. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> she's so small. We made we made babes like four. She's a tiny little woman. I need to watch life. that movie again and see see if I can draw the parallel. <laughs> but this continues on, and when Paul says that, real pain exposed itself in his voice, and Stilgar heard it, and he lowered his gaze. So he's Ooh. kind of ashamed. I'm just like, oh, like you hurt Paul with that. You hurt Paul. He, you're like he's still a kid ultimately. And uh, we get a line um, beyond telling us that these uh, Phytokin were formed by Paul and uh, Mr. Stilgar, if you will. And Stilgar's response shows us he's given much thought to this whole matter. I love this response. This was like one of my big takeaways from this entire chapter. Do you want to go ahead and read that one out yeah, for sure. us? Yeah, sure. Because it is so good. Multifaceted. So in response to like my death commandos, uh, no, I spoke with honor to Stilgar doubt it. Usul, the companion of my Siege, him I would never doubt. But you are Paul Muadib, the Atreides Duke, and you are the Lisan Al Gaib, the voice from the outer world. These men I don't even know. Yeah, and Paul, he just turns and he watches the Habayana Ridge climb from the desert at that point. They just look away from each other. Mm. It's sort of like the end of their discussion. And 
with the statement from Stogar there, it's like he's separating those people that Paul is. Telling him the Duke is this completely different man. And we're going to have that. It's going to come up again and again going forward. Yeah. Uh, Stilgar is going to bring this up for us. But he sees Usul still as his companion. There's a paradox there, yeah. right? And while he's looking at this, like a hand grips his shoulder. Mm-hmm. And it's Stilgar again. And he continues onward, like almost not done with this statement. Like, I'm not ready to end this conversation. And it's not its not a challenge or anything. It's just him letting him know how it is. Yeah. How things are. It's just that very serious look. The one who led Tabar Siech before me, he was my friend. We shared dangers. He owed me his life many a time, and I owned I owed him mine. Like, that's... It's, it's sort of like, yeah, kind of building a bridge yeah. back up, reminding him of this bond between them. And that's very much what their life has been like. Because you got to remember, they've been to battle many times. Mm-hmm. They've been on Razia together. They've, like, these Death Commandos, Stilgar is, I assume, one of them. Or at least in some... Do you think you know, he is? If not in the order, like, he's in that hierarchy, right? You know, he's got the training. He's got. I think every, he's been he's been trained, that, but he's I'm, not, like, part of the Death Commando squad. I think that's like, a little, all, like, All those Death Commandos, where do you think they come from? got to be Siech Tabar. Oh, yeah. Which are all Stilgar's people. Like, it's all bound oh, up. Yeah. That's I guess where, I wonder where their loyalties are. So, that's what I'm saying. It's all bound up together. And it's almost like you can't fully separate them. It yeah. makes it very strange. And that's kind of, again, what maybe what uh, Stilgar is bringing up here. We're like, there are all these men that follow the Lisan on Gaib. There are all these men that follow the Duke Atreides. Saul follows me. Sort of the difference mm. between those there. Now, um, Paul comes back to this reply, and after you said you brought up how Stilgar uh, pursued his leader out, his naive, right, Right. in that exchange, Paul just tells him, I am your friend, Stilgar. And that of, like, I get where you how we can color it, too, of, like, just Paul's statement back to him, building up this bridge and this camaraderie between them. I almost feel like it could be interpreted as a threat in a way, too, where he's telling him, like, I am exactly like you. I did, you know, and look what you did to your naive. Like, how how does that make you feel, Stilgar? Mm. Um, but Paul realizes Stilgar sees only one way to these things. It's the way naives are chosen. The Amtal rule, Ishtila. Yeah. Seeing all these Fremen words come up, right? Like, it's all about brutal necessity is what drives these naives and these decisions. And Paul doesn't think that way. Paul is a different way of looking at the mm. entire universe. He's gone through things a lot are of, bigger, a lot of different experiences, yeah, in his life that have broadened his horizon, makes him see more actors involved in this whole uh, drama than Stilgar kind of even is willing to give consideration to. Not just actors, but also possibilities. It's like everything's fluid to him. Where I could see when you turn left here, when you turn right here, like what's what's that going to mean ultimately for things? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but no, he sees that for. Hundreds of people, thousands of people. And for a certainty, too. Yeah. Which is way more different than anyone else having to, like, predict or try to guess other people's motivations. That's unreal. Now, we push this whole conversation off, though, because it's time to ditch this worm. We've uh, we've gone far enough. We're getting close to Havana Ridge. And so they discuss about how we're going to leave this in the deep sand. And, you know, it's going to tire this worm out, let him go, burrow down. He's going to bury himself couch. and sulk for a little bit. <laughs> like a whole day. This thing is just going to be like down there. And uh, right then, Stilgar catches something in the sky. He sort of like, oh, raises his hand. Paul turns, and uh, I think we get the first text example of using the blue eye filter that we've sort of alluded to before. Yeah! We see it in action. Paul whirled. The 
The spice blue overcast of his eyes made the sky appear dark, a richly filtered azure against which a distant rhythmic flashing stood out in sharp contrast. Dun dun! A single ornithopter scout. Too far off to see anything more than the worm on its surface, or so Stilgar kind of assures us. Never mind, though, that it's like the legendary size, the biggest worm that's ever existed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay. You okay. wouldn't think that the smoker's like, whoa, did you see that fish jump just there? That yeah. was crazy. What the hell? <laughs> Bank around. But uh, as everyone jumps off, Paul marks where Cheney jumps off. Specifically, just like yeah, remember just gotta that. make sure. I mean, well, him and Chaney, they're like this. Oh, and I was thinking last time a woman jumped off, she got buried in sand. So he's just like, never leave him. I know where to dig. <laughs> I don't think that's what he's thinking. <laughs> like always, where I'm gonna dig is in his mind. Now, uh, I mean, Lady Jessica didn't know shit at that time. Yeah, and she still hates it. <laughs> Paul uh, stays on till everyone else leaves. You know, he tells uh, um, Stilgar first on, first off, essentially. And then uh, Paul takes the worm. He clears the troop. So he's going to go a little bit further. Mm. kind of hooks it around. And then he takes out his maker hooks. And he runs down the backside. Very Flood Flintstone-like. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> at, the, at the perfect moment, you dive off. And uh, once you leap into the slip face of the sand. Now, remember when we started, we started on the wind face. Mm-hmm. So we put the thumper. Now right. We're going on the slip harder, face. Harder sand. Harder Slip's sand. Slip is going to be softer. And it's going to kind of pile down because you want to get buried yeah. right now. Uh, I, and I don't know if this is because we're getting rid of the worm or because we're hiding from the thumper. Maybe a combination. Definitely. And uh, so he hits it. He swings his robe up and lets the sand sort of just bury him. And then he waits. Yeah, because you, you buried the thumper in the wind face because it's thicker sand. Yep. So I think it might be just like a normal thing for dismounting a worm. Unless it's too tired and you can just climb off of it and just sort of like Well, no, no. Panting. Again, it, it, that slip face is going to bury you a little easier. And so that's why it, I don't know if burying yourself. Well, they have to. I might guess my question is, if you're riding a worm to yeah. exhaustion, do you need to jump off, like bail out of the worm? Or can you just it sort seems of like, like hop you, on off? It seems like you always do. Again, just for the sake that they don't stop. Like, that worm's going to keep going a little bit, sure, and sure, then sure. it's going to just dig down. Like, you just notice it goes a little slower now. Like, this worm needs to, like, chill out for a Yeah, bit. yeah, yeah. And then uh, run down, let it go. So whether or not you have to bury yourself, I imagine you still, you'd probably just have to still wait until oh, it bet. digs down and then do your sit, sit, slide, slip, slip, slide, slide. Mm-hmm. Um, but with all of us, he's got his rope down. Everyone else does. And he kind of cracks it just a hair, just to see the horizon. And he imagines that, like, this whole line of Fremen are all doing the same thing. We're all buried in our little dunes and looking out. And we're watching that thopter go. And it, like, arcs around and goes over them. And uh, this is where he waits until he hears it before he sees it. And it's an unmarked thopter. So that's no smugglers, right? Like, it's not a Harkonnen yeah, yeah, thopter yeah. or anything like that. And uh, after it flies over them in this big arch, it heads down, and it actually goes beyond the Habayana Ridge. And with that, we hear a bird call, and then another bird call. Those are Fremen. Always. Those and are so, Fremen. Boom! Everyone pops up. So you, all these little dust clouds must be going. And every you know, Paul climbs to the top of the dune. Once he gets up there, you just see the band. All the troop of Fremen is there. Mm. I love it. They, like an instant, you know, they're That's really gone. cool. They're a little magic trick. And uh, Stilgar signals everyone towards the ridge, and they all start sand walking. As they're going, Stilgar is intentionally keeping pace beside Moadiv. So again, I think that's a little measure of power right there. I'm mm. keeping up with this guy, yeah. all the youth, because okay. every, everyone's got their eyes on these two. Right, right, right. So they're going to be just evenly paced the whole way. Probably both of them aware of what this looks like to everyone mm-hmm. else. Now, uh, they do discuss the craft, though, while it's um, 
while they're kind of standing walking over. And Paul's telling them it's very deep in the south. If they come this far, they will go deeper. So there's a little concern of like the smugglers are getting a little more uh, explorative. Getting a little ballsy. Are. Yeah, this isn't their typical uh, way of working. And concern for the sietras and the plantings that are kind of kind of color their decision. And Stilgar says, hmm, well, they must be uh, hunting for spice then, right? And that's sort of. Do you think Stilgar knows something uh, Paul doesn't? Or do you think. With that, that? No, I felt like that was kind of a rhetorical question okay. between the two of like, you know, what else is going to bring the smugglers gotcha. down there? Of like, you think they're out there? Because it's, it's also going to. This is lead... like Fremen territory. Like, no one else comes down here. Yeah. And it's going to lead to like, I think he's already thinking what Paul's thinking, where right. Paul brings up this trap in our like last section here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul says, There will be a wing and a crawler waiting somewhere for that one. We spice. Let's bait a patch of sand and catch us some smugglers. They should be taught that this is our land, and our men need practice with the new weapons. Now Usal speaks, Stilgar said. Usal thinks Fremen. But Usal must give way to decisions that match a terrible purpose, Paul thought. And the storm was gathering. Oh, what a great ending. That's a really good one. That's a good one, Frank. You did it. We had some rough ones lately, but we that's, had, that's we had some real stinkers. Back on track. <laughs> <laughs> Building up. And I love this idea of them like baiting sand with spice. Yeah. Did you ever even think that was a possibility? Oh, uh, yeah, actually. I yeah. did that in a D&D game. Ooh. Yeah. Wait, baited sand with spice? Well, not with spice, but like <laughs> with a similar thing. Where yeah. Like, yeah. Have a little resource to get them down. And yeah, like, yeah. You know they're going to be greedy for it. <laughs> exactly. Oh, poor They're going to go for it. You're yeah. like, ah, ha, ha. Have yeah. your fingers together. Ah, <laughs> oh, and then, uh, again, I still don't know how we gloss over the fact that they missed the largest worm of all time. Yeah, but- exactly. <laughs> and also, this, this makes me think, because of millennia of sand writing, if a smuggler sees a worm on the surface, they don't think anything of it. It's just what worms do every so often, right? Yeah. They don't think that, like, oh, there's actual Fremen writing it. I mean, is that really the next thought you would make? Well, like, that's the only reason a worm would be on the surface, right? That we know. But there's just such a void of knowledge of the worms for them. True. I guess they don't really know one way or another. Or care. Because, like, I'm not going to get close to it. A little bit of both. Because, like, why wouldn't you think it's up feeding on something or doing some other means? It is kind of weird. Yeah. And and then you think of, like, how... uh, if it is always the Fremen bringing them up and leaving them and ditching them at random times, yeah. there would be no like correlating factor to each sighting that you had. You'd be like, well, this time it was at night. No, this time it was during the day. That was like a really big worm. Maybe one time you caught them riding the little worm. I mean, I guess the smuggler's knowledge would just be like based off of what you see because there's and, no real reports. You don't get any planetary like vision sure. on what's going on. So, And you think like, so how many people are in this thopter? Like six people? Yeah. They're going to go back and tell how often does one person get to see like two. So maybe you have someone's going to be like, I saw a worm this big. Right, right. But I'm just saying of all the worm sightings, each person probably has only ever seen one personally. Then everything else is like hearsay. So like, how do you build up a real idea? I guess, yeah. In the span of a planet, like one person meeting another, just like randomly in flight. We is not very common. You could start to build up enough barriers to be like, okay, this is why this information can't permeate out. Yeah, I guess they would just assume that, like, worms do that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. You Not ask why. Hey, I'm not the planetologist. That's someone else. And honestly, (laughs) I'm going to get spice. You don't get paid enough. (laughs) (laughs) You're just trying to catch a two-pile, man. That's fair. But... Uh, that brings us to the end of the chapter, Mike. Do you have any other well questions? Um, you had a worm theory. I did have um, a worm theory. Did you forget what your worm was theory? Was it? Hang on a second here. Uh, was it had to do with direction? Dirt you knock. We oh, have the got it. Our first experience with the worm was a little bit of a tease. 
strip tease for the Shai Halud, if you will. Uh, yeah, go on. So when we first saw it, we saw the worm sign coming. Like, oh, we got to get out of here. Get the men into the thopters. Throw shit out of the thopters. We can fit the men in. Hurry, we got the men and we went hurry. up. But all we saw was like sort of the mouth and the teeth showing up and like everything fell into it. Yes. How did that worm go backwards? Because it didn't go up and loop around or anything. It just went rah and then went back down. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I got you. All right. Do you have now, an answer for me? Yeah. Okay. Now, Mike, that worm had took it a corkscrew formation on its approach <laughs> to get underneath. <laughs> so what you witnessed was not necessarily a worm backing up, but it rotating in a counter circular motion that then drew it back beneath the sand, confusing your outworld or mind. Did this maker have a, a helmet with an American flag on it and a leather jacket? <laughs> a little bit of an evil Knievel worm doing some <laughs> bad tricks. I was like, what is this? <laughs> um, I mean, that's about as possible as what you just told me. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. <laughs> you can switch up. Uh, no, I got nothing. That, that's a good, that's a good plot. Oh. I just like, I don't get that. That worm totally <laughs> went in reverse. Yeah. You are dead right. Um, he <laughs> ate that thing and then he just went right back down with it. It was like, nope, nope. It's like, yeah, what just happened? <laughs> Weird. Just a little weird. Okay. But the other thing is uh, we get a thing here for uh, Mudir. Oh, and what do we get? Oh, you're the Mudir of the Sandrite. So Mudir means ruler. Yes. Like you're the one in charge. Yep. I thought that was kind of cool there because we know that Mudir Naya means uh, the demon ruler. Demon ruler, really. yeah. Because Naya means demon. Yep. We have just established through this. And that is our alternate name for the Beast Raban. The Beast Raban. I found a great little thing that I want to bring up at some point here. It'll probably be a Patreon thing, but okay. Found a, I found a spicy little fanfic with one uh, Glossy Ruban and Piter DeVries. <gasps> Ooh, pretty good. A little Piter? Yeah. A little more Piter? Is it, is the, oh, God, book. Okay. <laughs> well, why don't we just end the chapter there and uh, we can refill our wine glasses. Derek, we're getting faster and faster drinking these bottles of wine. I had to get us a couple beers. I'm hitting that worm as hard as I can, Mike. <laughs> we're cruising. Just trying to goat it? Yeah. Well. Take a moment from the Golden Swarm and give me some time to let you know that we partnered with Audible. Hey, that's some great news. It's pretty awesome. And right now they're offering our listeners a free 30-day trial when they visit audibletrial.com slash SpiceWorldPod. Ooh, what do they get with that? Well, what they get with that when they sign up, they get one credit they can use to pick from one of thousands of audiobook titles like Dune. That was my first audiobook. Yeah, you told me many times now. And now I've got dozens of them since then. If they sign up with their Amazon Prime account, they get two. Oh, even better. Not too bad. From then on, they get one credit each month. Mm-hmm. Spend on any title you want. Doesn't matter the price. One credit equals one audiobook. Choose the book of your dreams. The that book, book of you've your been dreams. Putting off for, you know, well, for all those months. Take it wish. Derek, what are you reading right now? Okay, so Mike, I have a, a favorite author of mine, Graham Greene, and I do remember searching for his books when Amazon when I first got uh, Audible, yeah. and they weren't there. And I just for some reason searched last week, and they're all there now, oh. and some of them are even original, so you can grab them for free. Um, so I picked out one of my favorite of his. It's called The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Okay. Now, this is a story about early American involvement in the Vietnam War. Well, it was still focused on French colonialism, so it's still very much the French fighting the Vietnamese. The book was published in December 1955, a month after our open involvement in the war began. Ooh. So, like, he started the story before America really tripped up and got ourselves, like, in the Vietnamese War. And you would think that this was, like, a satire published after the war for how accurately it predicted what would happen. It was, um... Endless horrors inflicted in the name of democracy by young men with zealous ideals of American exceptionalism. 
And I think this would have been like right up Frank's alley. Oh, God, just, yeah. Like, thematically and everything, right? Because it's just imperialism mm -hmm. struck on these people. Now, the novel, Mike, has been filmed twice. And this was just a little side bit of research. I was kind of like, oh, I'll look into other things of the Quiet American that kept popping up. Sure. Now, the two times they tried to make this into the movie, it just ran into history and had the most unfortunate um, interpretation produced. What, wait, what does that mean? Well, so the whole story is supposed to be about how basically negative American exceptionalism can be. Okay. Which you can imagine America is going to have a hard time wanting to show They're off. They're not going to digest so, that very easily. Yeah, the first time the movie was produced was in 1958. This is just three years after publication. We're going into the Cold War. And the film basically had Hollywood inverted its theme and turned it into an anti-communism movie. It's and pretty much propaganda. Exactly. So it's like, well, that's not what Grammar is. That's not meant. what the book is. So then we tried to uh, recreate it. And we did. We filmed it. And this next one came out in the 2000s. And it had uh, Brandon Fraser and Michael Caine. Now, Mike, uh, we did a test screening of this. All right. We we're going to like, all right, guys. And this is a movie about American exceptionalism and how uh, negative it is. So we did the screening on September 10th, 2001. Now, oh, no! <laughs> yeah, yeah. No! No, no, 9-11! After 9-11, um, they found the message kind of unpatriotic, and we're like, <laughs> so they shelved it for a year. Damn. So that one did end up being released in 2002 and kind of kept the message to it. Bad but it's timing, though. So it's... unfortunate. Wow. The only two times... And, like, the two times America gets an unending, like, I unwinnable think they, war... I think they get you know, number three is right around the corner. I think right 21's your year. <laughs> so uh, I would highly recommend this to you guys. It's called The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Oh, my God. That's actually incredible. <laughs> but, Derek, what if you don't like Audible? Oh, if you don't like it, you're not feeling it, it's not doing it for you, you can kill its naive. And you, <laughs> oh, no, different story. Oh, uh, they'll send you a courtesy email right before your 30 days are up and let, yeah. you, let you cancel it without let getting charged. Let you cancel charged. it. Get out of there. And, but, but here's the thing. Why would you? Oh, I can't think of a reason. Mine, I can't think of a reason going. And, hey, we know you understand the value of a good book. You read Dune. We're going to help you get a free audiobook when you visit audibletrial.com slash spiceworldpod. And be sure to send any recommendations back to us. Let us know any books you pick up with this little free trial. Go and check that out at audibletrial.com slash spiceworldpod. And, Derek. Yeah. I think it's back into it. Let's do it. I got a little deep dive. Ready back to go, into Mike. the erg. <laughs> Now, Mike, I got a deep dive on Fremen education. Okay. So how many more deep dives are we getting on Fremen? Because we've had some, like, patron-exclusive things on Fremen. We've had a lot of, like, deep dives on Fremen within our season one. What else is there to learn at this point? I mean, well, we're almost done. That makes it feel a little bit better. <laughs> uh, if you really want me to reveal, ha ha, I got nothing. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, no, no, we are, we're really close to the bottom. I got a few more Fremen things. Uh, it's just obviously we're in very Fremen heavy chapters now. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to shake them all out while I got them. Yeah, sure. Uh, we're, we're really, I mean, I've brought this up a couple times, like we're towards the end of what we have left for the encyclopedia to play with uh, for this book until we go into Doom Messiah and then start unpacking. Oh, that's right. Because we'll have brand a brand new, new yeah. yeah, yeah, shiny some, new toys, some new characters, <laughs> some new planets. Yeah, we got new toys, new chair dogs whenever they show up. Uh, yeah, we got all that to unpack. So I, I don't got too many more Fremen stuff for you, but the education I thought was so acutely tied to that response um, between 
uh, Paul and Stilgar recalling how many meters away from the worm do I have to stand? And it's like, oh, yeah, right. yeah. And this is a nice, short, and sweet one. And it's really going to reinforce some narratives that you and I have already focused on a lot, i.e., that um, Kynes and Paul are the two biggest changes in Fremen culture. And so that even affected Fremen education. Both of them changed dramatically with those two characters. So. Okay. The Fremen prior to the arrival of the Atreides were a semi-nomadic people whose tribal culture was well-suited to their hostile planet and its oppressive Harkonnen governors. Fremen education consisted not of formal schooling in a Pacific subject areas, but of a total life training. So it's going to be a very reminiscent of like the Amtal rule, right? Where it's applied to your whole life. Right. Just breaking it out. So when they never sat in classrooms before. And that's going to be, remember what Paul observed? Mm-hmm. That was a kinds thing. Right, that, right, that right. was a change in Fremen culture. They didn't do that before. A child was trained by all members of the tribe from his earliest days until maturity. The life and safety of the tribe depended upon each person's ability to observe the water discipline of the Sietch and to know how to conduct himself on the dangerous open sands of Dune. That really enforces the community of the Sietches. Yeah, I mean, uh, we kind of had that with uh, Cheney when her mother died at that, uh, I think it was the cave-in at Plaster Basin. Yeah. She was raised by Misra, um, Stilgar's wife, as well as the entirety of the tribe took her on. And especially because it was Liet's child. She even Mm. had, everyone felt even more of an obligation to kind of like take her in and train her. Is it weird that I always forget that she's Liet's daughter? Because I think, always just think like Cheney is Cheney. Yeah. Like, I always forget that, like, you were the daughter of the leader, uh, like, it sort of united the Fremen, in a yeah. way. And it's because they they pass, like, ships in the night. We never see them together. And then Frank kind of holds that information for us, I think, just for as, like, an emotional lever when it's revealed. It is a little dramatic to be like, oh, and this. I do, yeah, no, for sure. But it, it puts a big, uh, a big gap between those two characters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You never even really get to imagine them together, mm. uh, which is a shame. Because I think that coloring of, especially with Cheney and how she looks at Paul and part of the That's myth so interesting is because to of think of like she's so much more involved with the religious and myth aspect of things, whereas uh, Liette was more involved with the scientific approach to things. Mm-hmm. But like both of them, like I think we're aware of the other. Yeah, I mean, like Li- Liette was always just trying to like sort of, you know, this is the prophecy, but I don't want to. That's not what I believe in. That's not where I want to go. I, I was going to say, I kind of see Cheney's views in him, but I don't see his views in her. I don't see that True. scientist well, coming out of her. To be fair, we haven't gotten enough of Cheney. Yeah. We've had a couple paragraphs of dialogue from her. And I'm telling you from my like higher vantage point, I don't think we really do. I don't like, think that's very th- fair. That sucks. <laughs> you can say that sucks. I don't know if you can tell me that's not fair. I want to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I just say, I, I don't think she really ever brings out a scientist kind of character. And that's like coming through from the author. Well, mate, that's more just saying like, how much do we get to really know about Cheney? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And why I'm saying it's not fair is just like, we learn all of this about Leah Kynes, yeah. but we only get like less than half a page on Cheney dialogue wise. Yep. That's not fair. Classic, classic Frank. Fucking. Oh. I know, I know. Now, this continues on, Mike. The most successful method of this total training was the ancient riddle game. Its interactive methodology forced the child to reason, not merely memorize, to find the answer. Thousands of riddles went into Fremen training. And I have a few examples for you. Okay. Yeah, you want to see if you can answer them? Oh, shit. And this is going to go challenge, answer. All right. Challenge, silence. 
Answer. What would you say? He's just being silent. Ooh. Clever. Now, Mike, that wasn't bad. That wasn't bad. Now, the true answer is the friend of the hunted. Oh. Yeah. You see, there's like a little interpretation to that. And oh. that tells you a lot. You can learn a lot from that. What is silence? The friend of the hunted. And now there are also, there's multiple, I feel like there's multiple answers too. Right, right, right. It's sort of like. As long as it hits the same like general like bullseye area, it's like you're good. Yeah, yeah. It's sort of like a call and response. As long as you don't say a wrong answer. There are probably multiple right answers, That's very, right? uh, that's very zen actually. And oh, zen Sunni. Yeah. <laughs> the whole yeah. idea that like, yes. uh, no, no. I'm never going to give you an answer. I will always be here to help you find the answer, but you have to find it on your own. I'm just going to tell you if it's wrong or right. Oh my so the next book, there's a Zen Sunni philosopher. I think you're going to love him because he's basically a dick for that reason. <laughs> <laughs> the people hate debating a Zen Sunni philosopher. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> but but that, 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 the Zen, like in a nutshell, though. It is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I continue on. I have another one for I got two more. And then I think you and I should try to make up our own, too. Okay. All right. The challenge. What are two things never to do? Think back, two things. Oh, God, I can't remember. One chapter ago. I would say the two things you'd ever do as a fremen would be to rush or to waste. Oh, I like that, Mike. Hara would say, never forgive, never forget. All right, I got my third one here. Challenge. What does one take into the desert? I would say a fear and respect of Shahlud or Alat. Everything that is necessary and nothing else. Ooh, that's good. It's also kind of a cop out, but uh, yeah, 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 it's a good, it's a, it's a it's a good question because <laughs> you can also you can get that right without knowing the answer in yeah. a way of like, all right, now tell me what's necessary. <laughs> ah, shit. <laughs> but no, that's really good. I like that. Yeah, that's how the fremen roll. So I feel like we're playing the glossary game right now. I don't like it. Yeah, it's, a, it's a little unnerving. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, I feel like if we were gonna make up some of our own of these, maybe like what is night. I would say night is the time of subtle safety. Oh, no, I was thinking safety. Yeah. I'm like, that would be the word I would but expect. But, like, not really, because, like, it depends on your ability to move without but, calling hey, a worm the, again, to attention. But compared to day? Oh, for sure. You know, you know like, this is just this broad lesson. Yeah, like, no. This is the full day. All right. Can, can you think of one? I had, I had a chance to a little forethought for that. Oh, a challenge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, was that your challenge? That was my challenge. Oh, that was your challenge. That was mine. Oh, yeah. Well, I didn't know. Did that blend right in? <laughs> Did I do good? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Oh, it was very fremen. <laughs> oh, man. Because, uh, like, the other thing, I think maybe, like, something about, to do with water. Maybe. I mean, like, I feel like that's the obvious one. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see here. Maybe, like, what is the greatest danger out in the Yerg? What is the greatest danger out in the Yerg? I would say foolishness. That's what I was right. going to say. <laughs> yes. Or, like, like, like pride. Okay. That you okay. can conquer the desert. Sure. Um, or you can conquer Shai Halud, that you can conquer all of this. Yeah, like, sort of vanity. It's right? like, yeah, vanity. Yeah. Maybe, maybe you know, vanity, more, I think pride. Okay, pride. So you, yeah. yeah, sure. I think they're, they're, they're kind of, like, on similar uh, aspects there. Yeah, yeah, there's little shades in between, but yeah. I like it. Yeah, yeah, that's a great one for it. If Stilgar was here listening to this, he'd be like, you guys are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, sorry, Stilgar. This is probably what seventh graders do in the front end. We can make our own challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking that I like, I bet I can make my own. Oh, well, that was, I feel properly chastised now. <laughs> <laughs> This continues on, Mike. All right. Now, the tribal siege 
formed the home from which a person reaching maturity moved out into the world. The sketch was essentially a rule of law exemplified by the benevolent personal authority of the naive. Group action was the norm. So we're just kind of referring to, again, that naive, or I'm sorry, that sketch is always the center of where everything is based off of, right? right? Because it's like, we're not one big nation. We're a bunch of confederacies because that, is always the center of all law and rule. They don't oh, um, spill over into the other uh, CHs as that. It's just you're naive. Now, I don't know how you go about, like, if you just go from uh, CH to CH, do you feel out some naives? Find the one that's right for you? Or just, like, <laughs> this guy's a little too Shop strict. around, start a store. <laughs> yeah, like, this, it seems like you don't stay in the one you grow up in. Like, you have to move out, I think. That seems like at least a rite of passage. I don't know if you have to, but I think you always have the option to. Yeah. Well, I was thinking for a closed society, that might be how they keep their gene pool from stagnation or anything. Like, you wouldn't want too close of a society. Is that really what they care about? No, no. It wouldn't be a concern, but it would be like um, there is a benefit to that just for genetically, right? I mean, yes, but is that what they're thinking about necessarily? No, no, no. There, if if I was going to say from a friendly concern, it would only be about kind of culture like, and like a cohesion between Zen and Sunni. Theoretically, there's a reverend mother for every sketch. Mm-hmm. So like each one of them would sort of like have that knowledge and know like, oh, we need to send people out. We need to keep this together. Maybe that's the only reasoning I could say for like a genetic uh, randomness and like... Uh, Mixing sure. the different sketches. Otherwise, like, why else would they go out? Because every everything seems so closed off within their own communities. I, I would think to encourage a cohesion between, like, Zen Sunni. Because they do see each other as a people. Do you think Even if, like, like, I don't give a shit what you're doing in my neighborhood, Sietch. Like, you're still... I'm going to definitely got your back before I have anyone in the Imperium, right? Before right, right, I help right. any smuggler. I mean, yeah, no. It's like... Uh, like, hey, we support the same ball team. Like, we're, I don't care where you're from. We're still going to be friends. Yeah, you're still local business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But uh, I wonder, do you think that uh, they, like, people just do that naturally? Or they ask for volunteers to sort of go out and, like, explore and join other CHs? Um, it's, I don't have anything to go off of. Like, the encyclopedia isn't more specific. I, I would think it would be, um, that would be the cultural norm. Okay. And that it, you maybe would be like, uh, we'd all talk about that guy who like, st- oh, he still lives, you know, he's 35, he still lives in Sietch. Uh, he you know, he's still in his- Failure to launch. He's still in his dad's yali. Like, I'm trying um, to imagine Matthew McConaughey as a Fremen, and it's actually wild. <laughs> Again, having only gone true detective, that's where I see him. I really? Like, he's the burnt out Fremen out in the desert. I'm just like, I've seen Shiloh man. I've seen Shiloh man. There's a, the, oh, me and my friends always have a joke with- uh, uh, Matthew McConaughey, where, like, unless he takes his shirt, shirt off in the film, he's not Matthew McConaughey. That's, he's just some dude. That seems uh, logical. Yeah. There's only, like, I think two films that I can count that I've never, like, seen his ripped pecs or anything. And those were just contractual errors. <laughs> uh, they would they have got that shirt off yeah, and like, yeah. 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 Somebody messed up. <laughs> uh, but I feel like you wouldn't do that in the greater. I think you'd just die at that point. That's why I see the burnt out man. He's already gone too far. <laughs> He's gone full friend. <laughs> uh, I think he would be a good uh, muddy. I'm <laughs> the flat circle man. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's why you need that guy. <laughs> you just take that exact uh, monologue from True Detective yeah, and drop yeah. him talking to Stogar. It'll all make sense. Um, now, this continues on, though. 
All the training of the young focused on the life of the CH and their expected contribution and responsibilities to that life. So we're only going to do what you're going to be actually working on. We kind of have a vocational life here. In the CH Warren schools, the young were trained to make and service steel suits, rugs, wind traps, steel tents, and weapons. They also learned how to maintain stolen machines, harvest spice, hunt, use a Chris knife, repair a catch basin, and ride Shai Halud. Those all sound great, but I want to say, like, rugs sounds like an outlier among all of that. Whoa, what is Farouk going to sweep if you got rid of all the rugs? I mean, I feel like Hara would have something to say about that as well, but, like, the rugs seem like a super outlier among I, all of those, like, big-ass things. I think, again, that's, like, an Eastern set status symbol. Is it? When, when, like, you're setting up your tents and you're laying that down? I do. It, it, I think, like, oriental rugs and all this stuff. Like, I at least remember from the um, Lawrence of Arabia, whenever, like, uh, Amir Faisal, who was, like, the prince from Mecca, like, set up his tent, okay. it was, like, rugs and cushions and divans all around. Like, they go the full nine for it. And it separates yours out from it. Um, mm. But that's sort of, like, an inkling I'm basing that on. But it is like it's very prominent every time we've mentioned uh, one of the Yalis, right? Or especially uh, Jessica's and how ornate it is. It's always got rugs spread about as yeah. well as the hangings. Like we kind of carpet this out. So I don't know. I, th- I think there's something there. It is. It's important to the Fremen, at least culturally, because we always comment on rugs. Right. Um, and the fact that clearly, yeah, it's up there with everything else that starts with still. It's not a still rug. We still just make normal rugs. <laughs> but like they're up there in production value. I would have thought the one that stood out, Mike, was stolen machines. No, no, it definitely made sense. I was just like, I was hung up on like, why did rugs the, make this the list? The simplicity of rugs? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, Chris knives going out and stealing shit. Hell yeah. Rugs. Harvesting spice. So, yeah, tell me about the stolen machines, though. I don't know what that could be. Oh, I'm Do wondering. Do you think, like, uh, Kyle's interest in the artillery weapons? Definitely. Which they already took. We have Fremen have artillery weapons. We should just keep reminding people of that. Yeah, yeah, we at least got, like, the two. And- yeah. Ooh, Liette was going to go check those out. Ooh, they're going to be waiting a while. Awkward. Yeah. Oh, it, no, they were at Tabar, though. So if you, oh, okay. Um, we know, we know. Yeah, maybe we melted them down. And Paul was like, don't worry, just make some <laughs> wire out of that. <laughs> those are useless. Um. Yeah, I don't know. The other thing, cool. Uh, I don't know whether what stolen machines they get. Certainly ornithopters and stuff like that. Um. Uh, but then I thought it was interesting repairing a catch basin. Those are the ones down bottom. Big like basins for the whole tribe. For the water. Yeah. So I think it's just everybody probably learns. We all know how to patch that wall because everyone needs to know how to repair right, that if right. it breaks. Like, I don't care. We'll send a 12-year-old down here to yeah. like, <laughs> waddle that up. If you can fit your little arms in there, you <laughs> fucking do it, man. <laughs> and if that plugs the hole, that's where you stay. I don't care how big your lungs are. Get in there. <laughs> um, now this continues on to the point where everything changes. Okay. With the arrival of the planetologist Pardak Kynes, ah. the aspirations and subsequent education of the Fremen began to change. The emphasis still remained on the ancient, time-tested values of purposeful survival training, including the values of tribal unity and water discipline. Those, I mean, inherent. We're yeah. never, we're never going to be able to not be dependent on those. Oh man, I'm still going to put it out there. I think the Pardak kind of like broke the Fremen. And, like, everything that they were doing. Granted, I think, like, maybe what they're doing is better for the Fremen as a whole, which is why they do it. But, like, Pardot insinuated himself so strongly and sort of set the road and tone for Lady Jessica and Paul to, like, make their own road. I think Pardot bent it. I think Paul broke it. 
That's a really good right, way right, of putting it. You always gotta remember the both of them are a team effort, and Paul couldn't have done shit without Pardot paving the way, and Liette serving as just a bridge and a continuation of what Pardot started. God, that I don't know why, but I'm so angry right now. I just I love <laughs> Liette Kind so much, and I think that ah, oh, it's you. Uh, it's it's terrible because it came from like a good place, and if you turn back time, you would still encourage him to be like, no, you are. Every decision you're making is right. Yeah, it just sucks where it's gone to end up and that is terrible now i love paul to death but i don't think he's like a, like he's the protagonist but i don't think he's a hero that's correct oh oh mike i thought i was gonna hit some like backlash or like no mike oh playback episode one this is not a story with a happy ending this is not a story of good people and bad people this is a story of paul moadib <laughs> Oh my god! That's it. We have some talking to do at the end of the last uh, chapter. Okay, it's gonna have to do with fascism. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I did not think we were going that direction. (laughs) Get ready for it. (laughs) I'll continue on though. Okay. Um, Time uh, tested values of survival training, and uh, but Kynes offered the Fremen a dream. That the desert planet might someday be a lush, green, water-rich planet. The entire ecology of Dune might be reversed. According to Kynes, through understanding Dune's ecosystem and then altering it. Now, Kynes started the first formal CH schools, and as a result is often referred to as father of the Fremen education system. Now, Mike, you might appreciate this next line. Okay. This title should not be viewed as an honor, given how the matters turned out. Oh. This is where I get to tease our great, we did the perfect deep dive on Fremen culture, Mike. Yeah. You guys want to learn more about the paradox that is Fremen culture and some allusions to where it goes beyond that one line I'm going to tease out here. Sign up, check it out, and uh, for all you that are Spice Worlders, go hit play. It was a great episode. <laughs> <laughs> So, this carries on. In these schools, Kynes presented a curriculum that suited the planetologist's ecological ambitions. He taught about trees, grass, rivers, lakes, snow, dune plantings, and water conservation. Kynes supported the harsh disciplines of the Siech and the strong authoritarian rule of the Naibs. And that's where we are saying Kynes came in, and he changed by a degree, just putting his plan in, and then using existing Fremen culture to reinforce his plan, right? Now the naives are aligned on this uh, kind of course of action. And because of how absolute the rule is, the rest of the Fremen are as right. well, right? Everyone's along for the ride. The subversion dreamed of by Kynes and the Fremen of his time was not the political fall of the Harkonnens, but the conquest of a hostile, unforgiving desert by the civilizing influence of the ecological and social change of the Fremen. Had Kynes' plans had the time to unfold... Oh, shit. No, Mike, that's all I got there. Oh, are you kidding me? It's It's redacted? Oh, Oh, all right, I got one one, one more little bit for you. Okay, 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 okay. But he could not foresee the changes to be wrought by the Atreides. So, oh, we're left off. With Paul and Jessica coming in. Yeah, and whatever they change. Because, again, like you said, the kinds are going to bend it. The Atreides are going to break Break it. it. Yeah. That will be where I leave you with Fremen education. I like it. I like it. All right. All right. 
that's that's the end of my section, Mike. I get to kind of hand it over to you to a, a new favorite oh. section of the game. Daniel's Dune Gazetteer! So good. Now, every week we took a look at the stars and planets of Frank Herbert's Dune, a Gazetteer by Joseph M. Daniels. Daniels is taking us to a new one this week. I think it's going to be a fun one. It's going to be one of those ones where... Uh, you think, like, oh, that's a great idea. Why didn't we explore that? But, like, you wouldn't have ever thought, like, yeah, that's what we're doing next. Probably. Okay. Oh, You're going to be grateful we did it, but you would have never thought, like, let's go check out that planet. I don't even know where to guess that. At that right. point, I'm like, that's where you're like, hey, you got it? And <laughs> mislead. <laughs> System data. Star designation, Sigma Draconis. Star name, Asafi. Distance from old Earth, 18.8 light years. Spectral type, K0V orange main sequence. Magnitude, 4.67. Absolute magnitude, 5.87. Known planet, Corin. Oh! We're going to Corin. We're going to Corin! Okay, and so let's... It, are you going to be able to tell me how that's separate then from like Kaitan being the home world? Of the yeah, Imperium? absolutely. I'm, I'm going to address that really quickly. Because this is certainly their namesake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Battle of Corin. We yeah. know that that's where the feud started between the Harkonnens and the Atreides. Yeah, to uh, old Demetrius and uh, Demetrius what's and, his oh, face, Harkonnen? Oh, <laughs> that's good enough. That's good. <laughs> how all the Atreides remember them? <laughs> oh, what's his face? I feel like sometimes that's how even Frank wrote it down. <laughs> Um, the history, etymology, and place in space sort of blend a little bit, so I'm going to do my best to separate them. Okay. So, first off, the history of Corin. Now, within the universe, Corin was above all else the name of the space battle near the star system Sigma Draconis in 88 BG, which brought the predecessors of Shaddam IV to the Imperial throne. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Now, it is said that the victor was one Count Shuset Esavit, who took the regional name of Shuset Carino in remembrance of the battle. Oh, so that's where the name Carino comes from, from this battle. Great. I, knew, I knew they took it from the planet after the battle. So what was his original last name? Uh, Esavit. It, like E-S-V-E-C-E-V-I-T. Oh, okay. That's very... I don't even know what language that's sort of like based in. I didn't actually look into it that much. So. Yeah. Well, we'll leave it to the other. <laughs> exactly. Uh, very cool. So, nonetheless, though, becomes I know Shuset. Shuset's come up a lot. From yeah, me. exactly. So Shuset Carino. Let's... So Shuset Carino. He took the last name Carino because of that battle, mm-hmm. and that's where we get the modern day Carinos. Mm-hmm. That's kind of cool, right? Yeah, yeah. Establishing the whole like generations of them. Now it goes on to tell us about sort of the feud a little bit. Uh, in this battle, that Abelard Harkonnen, the lineal that's, ancestor... That's the bastard, <laughs> that's yeah. The, bastard, the lineal ancestor of the evil baron we love to hate, disgraced himself by an act of cowardice. <gasps> Others assert that it was, in fact, an act of treachery. But we'll never know. We'll never we? really know, <laughs> will we? Now, it may be that the House Atreides was first distinguished here by the heroics of Demetrios Atreides. Mm. Which, that's the name you told me. Like, you, yep. you fucking nailed it, man. Yeah, Brian uh, changes it to Vorian and uh, Xavier. Xavier Harkonnen, respectively. Okay. I mean, both kind of space names, but like... I feel like it's an up and a down. Yeah, I'll I'll give you Demetrius a... was really good. Abelard yeah. was really good. Exactly. And uh, I think that's who you stand to. Xavier is too X-Men for me. Vorian is just like, eh, why bother? Demetrius I mean, is okay, pretty good. Okay, here's the thing. I'm cool if you want to change, like... Uh... 
change the narrative and like how things actually went down. Cause in history, that's how it always goes. You never know which way something actually happens. We just know what's written down by the victors more or less. Uh-huh. You know? But uh, to change the names is kind of weird. I, okay, I love that. Because I wanted to just turn that back to your historical. We, okay, we might never remember where something happened. We know who was there, <laughs> We know who, we know who was there, there. Yeah. you son of a bitch. That is kind of weird. Yeah. Uh, Brian, like, I, I, I haven't read your books yet. I've, I haven't read the rest of Frank's books yet, to be honest. But, uh, <laughs> but I gotta I'm, ask, though. But I'm like, already choosing sides. <laughs> I'm already choosing sides. But, like, why is my question, like... Change the story, that's fine, but why change the names? That's um, just a little weird. Like, I don't, I'm just, I can't think of the words for it, but there's like a line the Emperor says to his uh, protege <laughs> in Star Wars like, your training is almost complete. Just give in to your anger. <laughs> You're so close, you Mike. Want, you just want me to turn. Strike Brian down no! in anger. No. <laughs> All right, continuing onwards, yes, Derek. Yes. Now, the battle will take its name from the quasi-nebula that was in turn named after the nearby planet Corin. This quasi-nebula had resulted from the collision of a planetoid with a substellar companion of Sigma Draconis. Ooh, okay. So that's kind of cool. That's dramatic. Any yeah. ideas for what that, that planetoid was that crashed into it? <gasps> planetoid thrown... I mean, no, Harmonthep was destroyed by something else. I can't think of like a rogue planetoid, I guess, is what I really want. Well, there's no answer, so. Damn. It's all it's speculation. Harmon Thep's as good a guess as any. <laughs> I'm going to say a ricochet from whatever that third moon in Arrakis was that got oh, destroyed. Yeah. <laughs> it's mysteriously gone. <laughs> Who knows? But we're going to go into some etymology here. Excellent. Trace back what you can. Exactly. Now, one finds, incidentally, that there were two ancient battles fought at Corinia in mainland Greece on the road to Thebes and Phocis. Now, this is... Old Terra. This is Earth. Oh, okay. Like Real actual history Greece. that we're going into right now. Woo. Now, the first was in 447 BCE that saw the defeat of the Athenians by the Boeotians. The second being in 394 BCE, the nominal victory of Agesilius II, king of Sparta over the Thebans and their allies. Now, in this later battle with the Thebans and all that jazz... Uh, one Xenophon and others of the legendary 10,000 fought on the Spartan side. Uh, Sigma Draconis is relatively close to Old Earth at about 18.8 light years. Now, one might say this is in the Syrian sector, which ah. is something I alluded to a couple uh, episodes ago within the Gazetteer. Syrian sector being sort of this cluster of stars, constellations within one arm of the uh, Milky Way galaxy's spiral. I should get familiar with this. You should get familiar with this. Apparently... So many of them happening here. He wonders how big was Shaddam's rule as a whole? Because it all seems to take place in a very small part <laughs> of the galaxy. <laughs> but we'll get we'll continue on from there. It is interesting that this battle took place so close to mankind's birthplace. The star name of Al Safi is taken from the Arabic Al Safi, which means cooking tripods. Oh, <laughs> so you know, like uh, three sticks up there holding like a pot over a fire. That's what yeah. I imagine a cooking tripod. Or being. that you would hang somebody from, <laughs> like, <laughs> like, a, like a death tripod. In a good old death tripod. Brotherhood of hate. <laughs> uh, no, not that latter one. I wonder if maybe he. That's where he like went on the tangent of like discovering that or something through the name of the. Oh, uh, I, even if just in terms of how he researched things, if that knows? brought him on that tangent to who death knows? tripod. I mean, he may have just yeah. been like, "That's a great space name." Just writes it down somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like that's what I would do. Now, we're going to our place in space, Derek. Okay. This planet is part of the constellation Draco, the dragon. Mm. Now, the alpha star of Draco is called Thuban and was the pole star of Earth at uh, about 4,000 years ago. 
which is kind of dope. Yeah. So, because of the wobble of the Earth, and Daniels will go on to say, the honor now belonging to Polaris, thanks to the wobble of the Earth's axis, they used to be this other star within the Draco constellation. Ooh, wait, how does that work? The wobble of the Earth? No, so how do we attribute it previously to another star and then decide that this star is our North Star? Okay, if you were to take a picture of the star, Mm -hmm. or not picture, like a video, a time lapse, and like see all the stars in motion in the night sky... Yeah. This is the one star that doesn't move. Right, but wait, are you telling me that it did change over time? Yeah, due to the Earth's access. Oh, so we, we've literally swapped North Stars at some point? And we'll continue to. How long? Do you know how long that period is? About 23,000 years. No shit. Wait. Oh, no, no 23,000 is for the axis to flip completely. I was going to be like, wait, Mike, that so means that, we're that's, due. <laughs> that's, that's for North-South, I think. In a year now. Uh, but, like, as for the wobble, like, it's yeah, always yeah. going to change a little bit. Like, that... Earth's uh, northern pole and axis sort of like wobbles a little bit, and it's going to change what the, our north star is. And right now it's Polaris within the Ursa Major constellation. Yep. yep. So, uh, and I'm but, just saying, so is that like a tens of thousands of a year period, or at least millennia wise? I mean, like this is 4,000 years ago that it was for uh, Draco and Thuban. That's really nerd. Because I, I always thought, isn't our wobble like um, expressed within a year? No, that's the rotation around a star. Yeah. But I think it has to do with your position, not only with your access on Earth wobbling, but also within your relative position within the galaxy itself. Sure, sure. It's just a guess. Cool, cool. I mean, that's, like, that's really. Hey, I'm not an astronomer. I wish I was because it's fucking dope. No, but... I'm, I'm not going to. I feel like I'm holding your feet to the fire here and you're I'm a... like, it's starting to burn, Derek. <laughs> I love off Doctor Who. That's my credentials. <laughs> exactly. No, no, that seems reasonable to me. Just really gnarly that, like, that could change. Even though, the, I mean, granted, that as a utilitarian purpose, it has no change. It's just the star that we look at at night when we want to go in a straight line. Right. And if you uh, think of it in but a generational term, it doesn't really matter to us because it'll exactly. always be this. It was here, this then. It'll be this it now. Ser- yeah, it serves the same utilitarian purpose. Yeah. Uh, just very interesting that like, as a astronomer looking on the scale, you can be like, oh, no, they were looking clearly at a very different star at well, some it's, point. Well, it's funny to think about that because 4,000 years ago, we did have the ancient Egyptian civilization. Mm-hmm. So that was their North Star. That was their pole star, Thuban, in Dr- uh, Draconis. Oh, okay, okay. So Draco Thuban was their North Star. Some people speculate that the uh, ancient Egyptians aligned some of their temples and pyramids to that North Star. I think this guy is one of those who... Ah! <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's several different speculations on there. Uh, I think you mentioned in a, uh, a previous episode that uh, you thought that Orion's belt was aligned to the... Pyramids of Giza. No. There's some uh, speculation against that as well. Like, there's some pseudo archaeology that goes along with that. I it's mean, a whole Mike, thing. I'm pretty sure I was just hit by modern. Uh, what is it? Ancient aliens. I think I just saw that as a child, and it just got to me. Probably. I think I got like some kooky conspiracy theories that are like fundamentally bent, baked into my it's thinking. It's easy to believe in things you want to believe well, in. Well, no, no. And when you're a child coming up, I'm and just yeah, like... you're very susceptible. Boom. Eat oh, that right sure. up. No, somebody said it on the TV. Uh, I know it's true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Shaking his head, big fuzzy like haircut. You don't talk about his hair. <laughs> <laughs> that guy is insane, furthermore, <laughs> furthermore, the Chinese also regarded the stars that revolved around the celestial North Pole and the Pole Star as the heavenly equivalent of their own terrestrial middle kingdom centered on the emperor. So that being that, like, the North Star 
was watching down on the emperor. Yeah. Everything revolved around the emperor because of that North Star. Very cool. Wasn't that kind of dope? Yeah, yeah. Very sweet. Well, and are you saying that there's like a correlation between the ones around it and like what is physically around the emperor? Uh, Maybe. Entirely possible. Yeah. yeah. I didn't look too deeply into that though. Uh, I can tell you. So the first emperor of China, uh, he built uh, his, he has an underground pyramid that he was buried in and they recreated the night sky in gems. And uh, oh my god, what? I believe there were pools of mercury that did like the landscape. Like it was basically like a map of the land and the stars of China that he ruled. And it's weird because I've never heard of the gems represented in the night sky, but I have heard of the pools of mer- mercury. The mercury being represented in temples. You may have definitely heard of. Oh, okay. It, at least in terms, he also had like uh, he had been poisoned by mercury by like uh, drinking it. Oh, at like well, his health admitted. I don't well, know again, if I'd want to put that in his temple then. Again, he didn't know he's being poisoned. Though. Yeah, fair. it was medicine to him, like uh, oh, to him. But yeah, I it, from my recollection, he had a complete recreation of the night sky. So like all the constellations done in gemstone. That's so wild. Yeah, very. Cool. That's really cool though. I love that. Moving on, and hey, who knows? Maybe this is why uh, all these events. This is why Herbert placed this epochal space battle here for Corin, mm-hmm. and like this specific star system in the sky. This is going to be a little confusing. We're going to come back to this, but. Bear with me. This next sentence. Okay. The star Arrakis is also in this constellation, Draco, and the Atreides may have their historical origins in the Makamo cluster near Upsilon Draconis. Okay. The whole second half of that sentence, you can repeat. <laughs> Arrakis star, though, I assume is what you wanted me to cue in yeah, on. Yeah, okay. That, that's the note. That was her familiar. Those are words. So the Arrakis star. So this may not be known to a lot of people, but Arrakis is actually the name of a star. Ooh. Out there in our night sky. And it is uh, specified, it's uh, correlated to the star Mu Draconis. Now, you've heard me talk about a lot of like constellations, and I'll talk about Draconis or uh, Pisces or Apioki as this. like the last part of that sentence that refers to of said constellation. The oh. Greek letter mean which is the star associated with it. And uh, I had a quick thing talking about, like, why they assign each, like, Greek letter to each star within the constellations. So, like, the first star in the constellation is Alpha. The third star is Zeta, et cetera, uh, et cetera. No, second star would be Beta. Yeah. I was jumping to third. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you, you got me. Fast you one got me. Bud. But there's a re- they yeah, also assign yeah, this yeah. for a reason, though. It's not just random. That, that I would not have caught on to that. And would have just been, like, they're just very Greek-oriented. Oh, yeah. No, uh, Kennedy, can you tell us? Uh Stars are labeled by their brightness and order in the constellation. So the brightest star we label as Alpha, and then further down, as they lose their brightness in the constellation, they're labeled lower and lower in the Greek alphabet. So, like, the higher the magnitude, yeah, yeah. The, all by the gradient of the luminosity. higher you'll be within the alphabet of the Greek alphabet. Upsilon Draconis is the 20th star in the Draconis. Upsilon meaning you. Gotcha. Oh, oh. Not epsilon being E. E. Upsilon being U. Well, they could have used some other syllables to <laughs> differentiate those, but I'll assume that they did this on purpose. <laughs> oh, fuck. I butchered that. <laughs> You're going to have it memorized by the end of this book. I don't there. think I will, Mike. I only have a few <laughs> chapters left. <laughs> <laughs> carry on, carry on. But so the star Arrakis is known as Mu Draconis. So M. Okay. Um, so it, was that uh, 12th or 13th within the alphabet? That is an unfair question it's for you 12th. to pose to me this late in the podcast. <laughs> <Anyway>. <laughs> I'm way too far in. 
We've had too much to drink. That's so like, you might as well ask me to do the alphabet backwards. And I'm like, sir, <laughs> I'm drunk. I'll just get in the car. <laughs> but uh, the Starrakis is also known as Mudraconis. Mm-hmm. So within the Draco constellation, there is the Star Arrakis. And I've got a little bit about that. It bore the traditional name Arrakis or Arrakis, starting with an E, which derives from the name given to it by Arabian stargazers. So that's where the name comes from. It does have Arabic roots. Does it have like an Arabic uh, meaning? Yeah, it does. So it's got two. Uh, And you can decide what you want to uh, attribute to Frank's inspiration for this. It's known as either the trotting camel or the dancing one. Oh, if I was going to give you my Frank takeaway, I would say it's the trotting camel. (laughs) (laughs) I would uh, say the dancing one. When you press me for reasoning, I would just walk away. (laughs) (laughs) I got nothing. You just wanted to be the camel. Yeah, of course I wanted to be the camel. <laughs> We're in the desert. <laughs> but uh, I just, I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to well, share it with people. And he so, may have gotten the name inspiration for uh, the planet Dune mm-hmm. from this constellation. But it's he didn't place it within this constellation. Because uh, I've mentioned, I think, either through Twitter or um, Instagram that it's within the Canopus system oh well even i did a backstory on that because remember oh yeah canopus a we talked about the white hole that's was right. canopus a and canopus, canopus b. b yeah yeah and they found it by accident so that that's gnarly and then so arrakis just happens to exist in our solar system as well yeah ah oh, that's really gnarly that's pretty dope right yeah I, I like it and the a b and c that refers to how many stars are within a system itself what do you mean, the A, a B, and C? Of so what? we have Greek letters referring to like the magnitude of a star within a constellation and stuff. Yeah. But what if we zoom in on that constellation and that star, and there's actually three stars rotating oh, around yeah, yeah, at high yeah. speed? Then we'd name them like uh, Alpha Draconis A, Alpha Draconis B, Alpha Got Draconis Canopus C. Canopus A, Canopus B. Exactly. That's what you mean. Okay. So in case anyone's been really confused by this, which I've had to learn a little bit about as well, there you go. There's your mic takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> Claiming it. <laughs> Claiming it. Um, so the second part of that sentence was, uh, the Atreides may have their historical origins in the Machmo cluster near Upsilon Draconis. So they may have originated from the Draconis constellation. Oh, okay. So why does it think they started there? I have no idea. I didn't look too far into it, but, uh, so regardless, that's kind of cool. Yeah, right? that's really neat. And uh, as it's as Daniel says, as explained in uh, further entries, Gamont and Grumman also revolve around a star in Draco. Ooh. Okay. So we get some first blood and some sexy times. And <laughs> some sexy times. <laughs> I didn't know how you're going to read down from first blood, but. Uh... <laughs> so continuing on, the encyclopedist informs us of another planet of Sigma Draconis. <gasps> Now, I only told you about one planet. You, Corin the fourth from the sun? No, no. So Corin, we don't know which number it is from the sun. It never oh. actually tells us. Okay. But we know what the fourth from the sun is, which is why you probably thought about the fourth, because I like alluded to it off, off mic. Ooh, yeah, me. yeah. You gave me a little preamble. <laughs> the encyclopedist informs of another planet in Sigma Draconis, Ishkal, fourth from the sun. Ooh. Now, yeah. this is kind of interesting. There's not a lot on uh, Ishkal. But it's uh it's sourced in a couple different things, and I'll I'll tell you what it's sourced in here, and you might uh you'll be able to guess what it has in common. I, I mean, all it's really bringing up for me is is Tisla right now. It's Tisla. It's like, oh that's yeah, a cl- it's really close of like a little bit. That's what I would think too. But like, no, it's it's a lot different it's and tall. a lot cooler. To oh, be honest. Okay, okay. So it is mentioned in if I go to the wiki here, it's mentioned in Dune two thousand. 
Which, uh, is that a movie? No. So there is a sci-fi miniseries close to the same time, but this is referring to the Dune. Uh, it's a real-time strategy game that was on PC. Does a RTS? Notably, very good. And actually kind of defined the genre. Uh, yeah, we can do a little deep dive on this one day if you want. I kind of want to check that out. I, I think there are a few PC gamer articles I've read of this game uh, okay. that would okay. be worth bringing back up, especially when the movie was originally supposed to come out. They had sort of oh. like resurfaced, you know, like, oh, right, we'll right. polish these pieces up for publication. Okay. So it was mentioned in there, and according to Dune 2000, Draconis 4 is home of the house Ordos. Uh, yeah, so Ordos and one other house only exist in this video game, and that's the only place in the universe they have that a little is home. really cool. Like, Frank didn't give a shit about them, and Brian didn't give a shit about them. They only exist in the video game. That's kind of dope. <laughs> yeah, the little, they are these red-headed stepchildren of the Duneverse. Uh, it is mentioned in, uh, Ishkal is in Stars and Planets of Frank Herbert's Dune, a gazetteer. Oh, who would have guessed? <laughs> is that Daniel's home? <laughs> exactly. As well as the Dune Encyclopedia uh, in Fremen language. Oh, excellent. That's a bit that I've just recently read up on. What I'm going to tell you here is a little bit more about uh, the language aspect, actually. Now, I'm not sure how they came about this with Zen Sunni only going through a couple different stops, how they would have heard about this, but the, there's a language aspect that comes from this planet specifically, and that is the word, can you guess what the word is? It's a very powerful word within the Fremen, Fremen language. I mean, I think I already played my hand with this Tisla. Um, <laughs> it's not a Tisla. No. All right. Well, how, can you give me any other clue? What can you give me that's close? Um, probably the most important word within their culture. Water? Uh, oh, that would have been a good one. That would have been it. Yeah. I'm like, uh, I would think like water or spice. I really don't know. What, do, right. what do you got? Uh, I guess maybe an aspect of fear and respect. The word shy halud. Damn. No, that is totally, that is like water and spice combined yeah. in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can't believe. So the language of this planet provided the word shy halud to the Zensuni ancestors of the Fremen. Originally, it stood for an extinct but formidable vermiform creature native to Ishkal. So and like, that, is that all it told you? That's all it really tells me. Since and uh Going on for this is in the Dune Encyclopedia on page two thirty six. If anyone wants to look it up, but, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get your hand. All, right, all, right, all right. And interestingly enough, Shai Halud, which on Ishkal refers to an ancient subterranean network of waterways and tunnels excavated by an extinct species of large amphibious life forms, Halud. Oh my god, what? Yeah, dude, the Fremen language section is really gnarly. So, I, yeah, no, I only got, like, the, the TLDR so, notes on this from Daniels. So it's just halud. Just halud. Shai oh. is going to come from shaitan, which is the Arabic word for devil. devil. I remember that. Yeah. The shaitan's bargain. So we're going to, like, combine them together. It's going to be shai So, like, halud. this devil, like, this, like, burrower. Bur this burrowing devil. Oh. Yeah, that comes out That's of the surface. That's really good. Hey, every now and then. That's actually fucking amazing. Oh my god. But what's funny and almost tragic and terrible at the same time, this planet, Ishkal, is not mentioned within the Dune Chronicles ever. Classic. So Frank Herbert's works, one through six, it's yep. not actually in there. It's not a Frank thing. I was gonna say I didn't know it. Yeah. Now I don't feel bad. He is not listed separately, Daniels being the 
person here speaking, but notes its putative existence here within this system's, I guess, directory. Mm. It's just kind of like, I think that's so cool to think about. And like, why wouldn't they take that from another planet? I'm like, oh, this is based off another creature. Sure, sure. Like, I, th- I, I, th- I think it's kind of cool. Like, it's not necessary. Maybe. I, lo- I, I love layering it in. I've like, like uh, yeah. watching a language evolve. And especially like we've never in human history had the chance to take like a people out of an environment and just drop them into a completely new one and watch the language evolve. Like, yeah, you, yeah, do, yeah. like you do in Dune in such a way where it's such dramatic of a uh, difference between the two. Especially when you have a book that's based off of plans within plans, plans within plans. plans. Like you would think that like, oh, those tiny little things, it just makes me love it that much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I I will tip my hat to the encyclopedia here for adding that tiny little uh, section. I think that's really cool. Excellent. You, they've done a few for the mollusk, I think, back the to mollusk, it, the I like the mollusk. It doesn't make sense in my head, but like I love it regardless. Hey, that's fine. In the cognitive dissonance, we so, will allow. That's up to you in your own canon what you want to believe. But uh, I would say canonically, probably not true, but... It's fucking dope. It should be true. <laughs> but it's fucking cool. <laughs> it's fucking cool. And Derek, that is all I have to tell you uh, about the planet Corin. Mike, slow golf clap. <laughs> now, I think there's only one person who was be, would be a little annoyed at us taking longer to do the midsection. And that's going to be that little bat betting at the door there. <laughs> oh, 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 you know what? I yeah. got a little toy. What? Hang on a second. You son of a bitch, what is that? Holy shit! No, no, and it goes around. He's gonna throw up when that's done. <laughs> I got my little RC car. <laughs> Why does it stop at you? Well, I mean, like, I'm the one controlling it. I got the little, like, controller here. Yeah, I can't want one. You just hey there, buddy. What he has the message to, or are you gonna hand him over? Okay, <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. All right, All right Giovanni, let me get a little beer here, buddy. <laughs> I know you took the long way around. <laughs> the long way around. <laughs> yeah. Put a little, yeah, he's no Quisotoderic, Mike. There's no shortening of the way. <laughs> but uh, what do we got here? We got quite a few few messages coming. In. We got a little backup of the distrans, it seems. Uh, starting off, Mike, um, I got... Ooh, Scott Glasspool from our little disc transfer Gmail. Now, I I was a little turned off by the subject header here. Well, why, why is that? Derek? <laughs> <laughs> May have uh, said, I think Derek's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me want to read it even more. <laughs> it was open when I got into the email, so. <laughs> I was like, oh, I need to see this. Yeah. But so, Scott, you bring up an awesome point, and we will totally air it here. I've heard Derek say many times that Dune takes place in a universe where the empire of Alexander never ended. Unless Frank said that somewhere, I think he's incorrect. When you read the background stuff about how the imperial seat of power moved from Greece to Rome to London to Spain, etc., etc., uh, I don't think we as readers should take that as one unbroken lineage of power. In our world, those were seats of power, but we would know that there is no real connection between them. I postulate that a civilization 20,000 years in the future who has only known the Imperium for a really long time might not realize this. It makes more sense to me that the people in the present of the novel are just looking at extremely fragmented pieces of history and trying to fill in the gaps. Just like we do with not nearly as old ancient civilizations. Uh, 
It may also make sense that the Imperium, even if we know the actual history, would let the people think that it's all one lineage, as to make themselves seem more valid. I propose that Dune is supposed to be the future of our world and not of some alternate timeline. Signed, Scott Glasspool. And, space uh, name? Yeah. Glasspool is just a great name. It's pretty good. I yeah. like it. Um, Scott, and, not so much, but we'll go with Glasspool. Glasspool, yeah. Glasspool. Uh, oh, did I keep it Glasspool? I blended into one thing, but it's Glasspool. Hey, that's whatever you want to do, man. I specify it. <laughs> uh, what oh, I, that should be a catchphrase. Specify it. Smack. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can we can we post to every pronunciation? No, we specified it. Uh, that's, that's the proper Gallic pronunciation. Uh, but I think Scott he brings up an entirely valid point to how we've been approaching this like whole Dune universe, if you will, right? Mm-hmm. Of like, yeah, there is no c- c- uh, concrete textual proof for me to like bring up to say well, like, one you thing told or another. Me that so long ago, and I, like. Hey, Derek, you've been my only introduction into this world. That's I legitimately Mike, thought. if you didn't think I came to this battle with a shield, you're dead wrong, my friend. I got, <laughs> so, I got, I'm going to defend myself. Hold I, on. I don't know. I'm going on the don't, line over to Scott. Don't side. retreat from my hill just yet. <laughs> All right. Scott, uh, the only things I bring up in my defense are that in the Dune Encyclopedia, our timeline starts with the founding of Alexander's Empire. Oh, yeah. And I'm just like, why would you bring that up if we were going to disregard it? If the Conqueror, wouldn't you want to like sort of throw that off? But Scott already does bring up the counterpoint of like sort of absorbing that in and being like, no, looking back in our history, like we would just claim that as our own, right? Even as like from the victor standpoint, or it's right. easier from like a propaganda kind of view. Just be like, we've always been here. That's why we're always here. Um, from a modern standpoint, I think to like China. China loves to point to itself as like the longest um, continual civilization, even though there've been many upsets, like dynasties have come and gone. <laughs> no, but like you still even even we, I think as Westerners, contextually think of that as like Chinese history. Mm. And can you? Can, I can totally see the connections between two completely removed governments that over time we just wash together and we just be like, nah, they sort of changed opinions, you know, as they come and go. Um, but. I hold up Alexander at the beginning, and then with the with Alexander holding, if Rome kind of like merged with Alexander's empire because Alexander conquered Persia, I think that's what gives us room to bring in the Padishah emperor. So, oh, Padishah! What did we decide that was? That was like um, uh, Master King ruler. Yeah, Master King ruler yeah. or Master King. Yeah, something along those lines. We're two beers and a wine, M. But a blend of all three of those titles. And that is why I support still that maybe Alexander was uh, held up through Rome. Because he conquered Persia, Rome brought those together. And then within the Dune Encyclopedia's timeline, it is only specific in that China held out as an independent empire while the rest of the world was united. Ah. And then House Washington still exists even in this world where Rome never fell. I love that it's called House Washington. Well, and, and House Hitler shows up. Because we oh were God. fucking... Uh, yeah! How, you know, oh my, I referred to this once. House Hitler was like a young upstart. And, uh, yeah, House Washington had to put him down. And uh, I, I think they had a house for England at that time, too. So I think both are entirely valid. And ultimately, however you want to shake out the history, none of it matters 10,000 years from now. When I, we... mean, like, I mean, I think that's what we've sort of come to. Because even uh, in my little thing on Ix, mm-hmm. 
is we know we know it's the ninth planet from the star. Yes. And we think that it's funny that it's called Ix. And maybe at some point that's the reason why it was called that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, it does mention that no, like the irony is that no one actually knows that IX means nine in the Roman numerals. Mm-hmm. Like that knowledge is forgotten. So I, I, I do think it's cool that it, it leads to that, but also it's proof that history is ephemeral when you go that far into the future. Everything can be made up, it can be rewritten, it can be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Um, which I think is kind of cool, and that, I mean, maybe that's why it's super important to have these bloodlines and uh, genes that have these like DNA memories throughout generations. Why the Benny Jedrit are so important. Or I would even flip that off, or maybe why the author is so desperately clinging to the idea of them. Like, why you would want them so much. Maybe, be like, yeah. God, I hope in the future at some point we can figure this out. Maybe, yeah, no, I, but I think that's cool. And I love that he always approaches it from, like, but it's only from the feminine side of you. So, like, you only have half the history ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And only from, like, one gene pool and one line. Always limitations. So, I, I think that's cool. I love that. But yeah. uh, I actually, I'm on Scott's side here. I don't necessarily agree that there's enough evidence to support that it was, like, the if the Roman Empire never fell. I like the fact that, like, hey, we just keep doing what we're doing, and this is what's going to happen in, like, 30,000, 40,000 years. Yeah, yeah. I, I can totally go. I'm not willing to back us a hill and willing to die on. Uh, I just want to cling to Padi Shah Emperor to bring the Persians in. I feel like it's so... Uh, I, I put a lot of weight on Alexander for it. Okay, but at the same time, with no. the Orange Catholic Bible, yeah. with us combining all of these words no, and no, terms no. into not, one... Not important whatsoever. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, just saying, though. Scheme. Like, I think if, what you just bring up, the Orange Catholic Bible is even the more critical is, of like... It is a little weird, isn't it? No, no, I think that serves as like uh, how we gloss over everything. The Orange Catholic Bible is the perfect point where in Frank's history, like we bring all these people together... What better time to rewrite all of history than is in the Orange Catholic Bible? That or is anything true. that we do need to change. Be like, how much history is stored in religious history, right? That's true. Because yeah. that's what everyone's going to turn to. Yeah. You find that masses. in every space hotel out there. And then uh, ultimately, the biggest thing I block back to is like why we have this little Frank Herbert quote we've pulled and have dropped in our little sound bar is that he does want us to run with like all the things he didn't do. He's like, you figure it out. Like, why would I? <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what to think. Right, right, like, right. you got an imagination. He did enough work. And honestly, he did. This is a really good bar. Well, yeah. And <laughs> I think he just ultimately like, felt like he'd be stepping on your toes. I'm just like, he really wanted you to run with it. A, not as in like, an, I'm not, I'm not going to do any more work. But just yeah. like, wouldn't you like to imagine it more than me, like shoehorn you into one narrow uh, kind of facet of that history or I, potential? Uh, this is a good like tangent for me as like a, you know, me being the D&D player that I love to be mm-hmm. is that there's uh there's several different like D&D worlds that people create and you can play in any one of them like none of them follow the rules of the other ones there's one by a man called Keith Baker called Eberron okay and like his thing is he goes about he talks about like hey what if and we did all these things and like it's like uh arcano techno kind of world like goblins are intelligent they have their own society and like we respect them in a different way we have these like mechanical beings and all these weird things but like the idea is that there are all these overarching like questions and religious aspects where you'd be like, oh, I want to know what this means. He never tells you. He always just says, hey, I built this world. You're the one that's going to run it for your friends. You figure it out. It's your world now. Yeah, I and just put give you the building blocks. You figure out the rest. I like and that. I love that aspect. In that he just wants to subvert 
some things in the D&D world. Like, no, let's add some mechanical. Let's give intelligence to the unintelligent. Mm-hmm. And then you just run with it from there. I like to think that Frank Herbert did a little bit of that as well. I think he definitely did for sci-fi. He very much turned sci-fi on its head. Where a lot of sci-fi up until this point, being in the 50s and the early 60s, was driving humanity to perfection. Was humanity solving all of its problems. And it was very much like an H.E. Lovecraft and a Frank Herbert kind of vibe that flips it on its head and goes mm-hmm. like, what if the technology and this sort of ascension that we're going for is just us approaching a setback or approaching like a death state? Paul talking about the stagnant path. That's a death form for all of humanity. Is that stagnant path the, the jihad? No, no. The stagnant path is the path he refused. He will go down the jihad before we go down the stagnant <laughs> oh, God. path. Have we the, even talked about the stagnant path? The is that sta- a thing? Yeah, it's come up. I don't know if you've attached such importance to it, but it always leads to stagnation and death of the species. It's sort of like that quote that talked about reaching um, perfection in a pattern. I feel like maybe that the stagnant path is the Bene Gesserit like plan. It is in a lot of ways because they're always breeding for a specific thing, and then you don't have. Well, again, so they're breeding towards something they can't see. Paul is able to see it. I've told you before about the other Kwisatz Haderach that could see it. That's such an interesting idea to think about. Like, you're breeding this perfect prophet to come to be and say, like, what is? And you can see everything in your background. They say, like, what you're doing is wrong. Like, we got to stop. Mike, what is the whole purpose of the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side? I mean, yeah. Even when you cross over to the side, you will look back and you'll be like, oh, no, it was greener back home. Vice versa, if you go back home, you will look and see, well, no, it's greener where see, I was. Like, no, I can see the actual chlorophyll levels of this plant. It is for sure greener. I look over at this side. This is not as green. You guys are going the wrong way. We need to turn around. Yes, yeah, so you go, Frank, you're a dick. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That's, what, that's where I feel Paul is right now. It's just like, yeah. he is in such an interesting position because Benny Jezzard did not expect him to be here where he is right now. Yes. They expected him maybe in 100 years, maybe 70 years. Who knows where you really want to put it? Oh, I don't think you fully took him when I was describing where I don't think they have a full appreciation of what his powers are. Well, they won't. No, and, they like, can't. That's the thing. They don't expect it. They just know that's what they want to get. Yes. But... Not only do they know, or sorry, not only do we know what his sort of his powers are, and he knows that, like, there are bad things happening, we know that the Bene Gesserit aren't aware of that either at the time. Okay, do you think it would be a difference if they did? I think they might change things, or they might... I'm saying, regardless, Paul is close to what they were going to get. Even if they got it in the right time, I think they would find themselves just as much in a pickle, if you will. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's the beer talking. Maybe it's the super in the back of my mind. But I'm just saying that, like, I don't necessarily trust them as much as I used to. <laughs> <laughs> hey, that might be the Lado, actually. <laughs> that might be the Lado. Derek, I told you about the spice. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Have I told you that I got a few more EDs in this uh, bat here? Yeah, sorry, guys. Like, I just, we went on a super tangent there. <laughs> That's the power of glass pool. <laughs> So, thank you, Scott. We really thank appreciate you. That's that. That's a great question. Um, all right. Giovanni, I'm sorry, buddy. I'll give you a little more beer. <laughs> you sat there so quietly for a while. All right. But I got another one. This is a classic. This is from Laurel. Mm. You got to remember Laurel. You're one of our OG CH uh, inhabitants here. Our Spice Worlders. She tells us, I've always imagined Ix as a real-world planet Pluto, the ninth planet of the sun in Frank's time. 
Ix being on the far edge of the Empire, the Terra Earth being lost to history, it seems kind of sly, almost as if he did that on purpose. <laughs> God damn it, Laurel. Also, do you think when the Bene Gesserit use great mother as an exclamation, they're referring to our OG goddess, Kubebe? Kubebe. Now, we're going to have to separate those into yeah, two this, questions. Yeah, this is a two-part question. This is really good, though. So, uh, Ix as Pluto, in, as Frank's uh, contemporary. So, I we've done a lot on Ix at this point, to the point where, like, I haven't gone far into the Dune Chronicles or into Brian Herbert's works at all, or really the Dune Encyclopedia, because that's your wheelhouse. But, like, from what we've talked about within our deep dive specifically and within our some of our B2Ds, yes. I feel like I am, like, I've got a little bit of information on Nick's that I can sort of, like, talk about here. Yeah. Speak truth to power, Mike. One, I love the idea of, like, equating Pluto to Ix, being the ninth planet from the sun. I do think that that is a good correlation because, like, why else would you just be like, oh, it's the ninth one? Interesting. Interesting for choosing that number. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's also just kind of a fun number that makes sense, like, when you say it out loud, X. Yeah. Like, what else are you going to say? Well, how, how many of them uh, make, like, a phonetic uh, form? Like v when you... with two eyes instead well, of one it, eye because it it's hard to identify those two planets. Gonna, four could be if. That's if. not that's not a bad one compared to X. Yeah. Mars yeah. is if. Who knows? Um, but yeah, no, I think that's interesting to bring up. I didn't even think of the correlating it to that because of nine to nine. To think of the idea that that system is actually the same system as the Terra system could be kind of cool as well. If mm -hmm. you think of it from that idea where like Pluto is X and, um, oh fuck, what was it? Rachis is Earth or whatever. Was Rachis the fourth? Well, I was just going to ask you, like, what number was it? Go ahead uh, and look that right now. Let me look up the Dune Gazetteer. Yeah, yeah, I might be able to beat you to it. No, it is fourth planet, Mike. Wait, so Rachis is the fourth planet? Yeah, fourth planet uh, in the Epsilon Iridani star system. Oh, my God. With X as the prima machine uh, cultural sense. No, we already talked about the system is different from where Earth is right now, but, like, that's a really scary correlation. Well, no, no. So, again, with what Laurel brings up, it's like Terra is lost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, in Dune, so it's it's gone. We yeah, don't know. We don't know where it is, right? So yeah, yeah, yeah. it could totally be where X is. There's no information on Soul either, potentially. Like, well, no, there is, but I just haven't gotten to that in the Gazetteer. Oh, yeah, I guess. But no, but I I think that's a really good correlation. Where like uh, Richie's being the was it the fourth or third? I guess there's also the problem with uh, Ix was an agricultural planet and Pluto is a little tiny ice rock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we're willing to gloss over that for you, but Laurel. A different type of star doesn't matter. Yes, yes. This is why Earth got destroyed in the history <laughs> No, no. Well, you guys only call it Soul. There's a whole address. Well, oh, you know what's funny? Because the star designation is Soul because our the star is just named Soul, but we're not within a constellation because all of our constellations are from the perspective of Old Terra. Hey, it's because it's just because we can't see. Yeah. Well, like because the star system data from the Gazetteer is all from Earth's perspective. This is what we can well, see. I would hope all star system data still is. Well, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, obviously, but like, it's not like a treaty starts yeah, yeah, data because yeah, no, sure. all those constellations no, wouldn't like, exist. They'd eventually, we different. need to redo all constellations from the center of the galaxy. Like that is the epitome of human a evolution, right? Constellation. Oh, an orthodox constellation system. <gasps> yes, well. yes. 
Oh, man, we brought it back. Orthodox constant. That's fucking cool, Mike. That is kind of cool. That's our... Tia Mike Crispin. Yeah, that's like... <laughs> Spread the our... word. <laughs> no, put it away. Block it. <laughs> Redact it. <laughs> I want that. But so we would be Soul 3. Okay. Because like third planet from the Soul star. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But you um, can't play Soul in a constellation. Exactly. Yeah. So with the Gazetteer, it's not in a constellation. Because everything is from Soul's perspective of constellations from the night sky. But... Regardless, I think it's super cool to draw that parallel between like the the soul system and Ixen Rachis's system. Okay. Uh, was it Ophiuchus? Oh or yeah, was yeah. It Eridani? Eridani. Eridani. Right? Yeah, Ophiuchus was uh, Gandhi Prime. That's right. Of course, as we all know. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we're getting smarter now. <laughs> we're smarter every day. So um, I I love that though. I think that's great. Stuff. Yeah, putting it into like kind of scale. Yeah, oh, so oh I my think, god, imagining Pluto like coming and just invading wouldn't us. Wouldn't that be weird? And they'd be like, you guys all head back to Pluto because <laughs> like that ice ain't gonna mind itself. <laughs> I just think Laurel's onto something there. I really like the direction she's going. Uh, I think that's well, pretty dope. Let's tap into the second half of Ooh, what she had that's going right. then. Question here. Do you think when the Bene Gesserit use great mother as an exclamation, they're referring to our OG goddess Cooper? Baby. Coop baby. So, well, here's the thing, though. That's only if you think of Ixen Rachis in terms of, like, the soul system. Oh, I would push back that it's only if you're attributing Great Mother to the Bene Gesserit, which is broader than that. It's it little, is broader than that. Because it's from Imperium. the OG Bible, I think. Yes, indeed. Because we think of Great Mother in terms of, like, Mother Earth. Mm-hmm. But when we did the OC Bible, we changed things to encompass something that was more orthodox, something everyone could relate to. Exactly. So it's going to be very overlapping. My orthodox is our word of the day, Derek. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> so I brought up the Kubebe article for us, though. She, right. That was the goddess of Comos, a mother goddess, regarded as the source of all life, animal and plant. Ooh. Her um, absence brought death. Each year, as the world died as a result of this. So remember spring and winter? I would think of Kubebe as the sun. Like, well, again, spring and winter. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Like when Kubebe, when you don't see Kubebe, everything sucks. Because mm-hmm. it's her return that brings that all back. Yeah, exactly. Now, I, I don't know if we could uh, fully connect her entirely to like the Great Mother. Because the Great Mother was the horn goddess. And yeah. I would be very reluctant to relieve that from uh, El Muerte's True. status and in the heavens. And I specifically want to go into it deeper. This is within the original Book of Dune within its glossary. Great Mother's in here as the horn goddess, the feminine principle of space, commonly Mother Space. Like you would say, Mother Earth. Oh. The feminine face of the male faced neuter trinity, accepted as supreme being by many religions within the Imperium. So, this is saying that, like, this is the feminine aspect of God within the entire Imperium itself. Okay. So, in that case, you are leaning towards Laurel's use of Great Mother, meaning that. I think you, no, well, I think it's the opposite. I think you could attribute Kabebe to Great Mother. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. That is exactly what I meant, and I'm a little too drunk to uh, properly <laughs> describe that. That is, a, in, in my terms of thoughts, that's the proper order of occupation. Um, the Horn Goddess. Is there a reason they named it the Horn Goddess? No idea. But we if haven't you met it yet. If you so mess with the bull, you, you get the, the horns. The Horn God in both Celt is known throughout Earth. It's tied to many different religions, both Celtic and Greek. For Pan as the horn god, as well as I can't. It's like a satyr-like being, right? Well, that's uh, several. Uh, Pan being like a god of the earth and like the woods. Yeah. As you can see, that would tie and, to like fertility. Oh, in that and the Celtic one is tied also tied to neo-paganism. 
It is Karunos, known as the horn god of Celtic polytheism. Also the same kind of pantheon, same kind of dominion as Pan. So I think you, I think you're on the right path with Earth Mother kind of idea. Oh, uh-huh. so the, maybe this is more like taking more things from uh, different aspects of religions within Terra as a whole and combining them within the OG Bible. Well, I, I think within each aspect that he described there within the masculine was just fertility, though, and that the, we're seeing that subsumed by the Great Mother with horns. Whereas, like, norm, typically of strong female goddess is going to be your fertility one. If we're subsuming Pan, his horns and whatnot, and ascribing that to the great horned goddess now, I think it's just making an even more emphasized version of that one facet of humanity. Hmm. Of, like, the great motherhood. Oh, man. I'm standing on the side is, like, Kubebe is the OG great mother. Where are you? Are you putting great mother? I'm saying great mother is the OG goddess, and Kubebe is sort of, like, assigning herself into that role as well. Again, the okay, whoa, whoa. so, Mike, you have to choose. Is it it's OG Kubebe or OG great mother? Great mother. Okay. All right, Laurel, if you want to make Mike choose champions, again, I'm <gasps> on your side, and I fully back Another you. knife fight. Yep. You got it out of the last one by the skins, but now it's uh, line of the sand, Mike. <laughs> I stand completely aligned with her on this one. All right, all right. I'm liking I this, like that, uh, though. That's good. I'm liking this a break in between. Now, can we... Uh, I still got one more ED in this tube here. Are you kidding me? Uh, hey, Giovanni. Guys, I'm sorry. Like, what are you asking all these questions for? We're not popular. <laughs> you shouldn't be phoning in as much as we tell you to. And in case, I'll just play this anyway, Mike, and disregard you here. <laughs> uh, oh, get out of town. Mike, you're going to like this one. All right. All right. So this is from Rich W. He sent this one. He's asking about, he's been listening to the Butlerian Jihad. And this is a pretty good question. With an autocorrect, I entirely <laughs> prohibit it. Do you think the Bene Jesuit now... <laughs> Bene uh, Jesuit. <laughs> <laughs> they very... Yeah. I'm going to assume he means the Fremen. Um, <laughs> no, the Bene Jesuit sisterhood. Do you think they wanted to push the jihad faster due to the robos not being affected by certain sisterhood powers? Oh. Now, are we talking about in the space? I got one one last thing here. He hasn't finished the episode on the jihad just yet. (laughs) Okay. But this is the idea of Duncan Seelson. Now, Rick, I'll tell you, we didn't get to that question. That didn't come up. So, good time to question that one. Uh, We're going to answer it here for you. So do you, the question ultimately being then, do you think it's the voice which dictates everything that happens within their plans? Well, it, no, hold up. Let me flip that back to you. Of like, Do you think the voice is what Rick is referring to here for why they would turn to the robos faster? Now, we're also assuming that these, these AI, this robotic form that was the subject of the Bitlerian Jihad, is probably like a little more oppressive than um, what started the Butlerian Jihad and the encyclopedia breakdown we did. Where oh, are these different? In Brian Herbert, it is. They very oh. much like enslave humanity, enslave humanity. Wait, what? Yeah, it, it's a totally different take. It takes a little longer time to set up. Um, but assume that they basically like enslaved humanity for the betterment of humanity, as you can easily imagine a, uh, an algorithm doing. Be like, you guys are hurting yourselves with your constant wars. If I oppress you and put you into these positions, you'll stop hurting yourselves. Mm. I, hmm. I mean, I feel like they would be on board for getting rid of them because ultimately the machines will not serve their purpose whatsoever. It just does not 
work. Definitely not. They, it's like oil and water. It just does not work. Oh, I like that. I like yeah. that, Mike. Oil and water. Oil and water. That's the two things on Arrakis, right? That are yeah, the most different. There you go. I, I just don't think they'd fit into Benny Gesserit plan. And maybe they did. Like, I like to think some of the Benny Gesserit have some sense of prescience. And they have been cultivating that to a point. Um, they may not have like crazy presidents like what Paul has or what Lady Jessica or maybe even the Baron may have a little inkling of, but they do have some of it. And I think they could see that like, this is not going to better us in the future. Like we just need to eliminate this because if we let it go, it's probably going to be a hindrance and an obstacle more than it is helpful to us. Yeah. I mean, we can definitely see the threads of where they would assign it as a threat because we went through what Jean Butler viewed that whole... Um, Kind of jihad in the beginning as, and she was Bene Gesserit. The whole yeah. core was Bene Gesserit that started that thing and kicked yeah. that off, that uh, whole um, debacle, I think is a way to phrase it at this point. Um, so I think I could see them totally assigning the robots as an existential threat for reasons outside the open, um, what do I want to say, like the opening reasons for why we started that war. Like, yeah. you know, what we told the people we were going to war for. Mm-hmm. Maybe the mm-hmm. Benedict kept a few cards close to the chest. I'd be like, but really it's this part. Right. Um, that I can't affect these people in the future or going forward at all. So I, I, I think Rich definitely has something there. Um, he finishes this with, uh, oh no, sorry, that was just that he hadn't finished the episode of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right, told me yeah, he had to go that in. Uh, is there anything you want to add to that? No, no, I mean, that, that was my viewpoint. Uh, Derek, uh, I think, I think that does it for us today. Yeah. Give Giovanni a little bit of wine. Giovanni, he's pretty hammered at this point. He's just <laughs> sipping away at that one. I'll get my own bottle, I guess. <laughs> he finished off that six pack. Yeah. Um, so if you guys, uh, I think I pretty much done it for this week. Yeah. Does anyone have a question for us? Do you perhaps know a wine we could afford? We're at Spice World Pod on Instagram and Twitter. You can always send a distrance at SpiceWorldPod at gmail.com. And of course, there's our website at SpiceWorldPod.com. And if you're looking for a way to support our show, come join us at our little CH over at Patreon.com slash SpiceWorldPod. Oh. Yeah. It's where you can find our exclusive bonus Between Two Dunes episodes like Ampoleros, Guild Highliners, or Norma Sevna. Ooh, oh, I want to throw throwing Fremen Culture because I've referenced it like twice today. <laughs> That's true. Fremen Culture is probably a good one to get into. It was. It, it was. was a fun one. Now, Mike, I, I can't leave you empty hanging. I, oh. We're just going to close cut it for the week, I right? I need my little away. snippet. All right. So we were entertaining the idea of what was going to happen. These smugglers, who are we going out to meet? I kind of want to get your perception real quick of who do you think we're going to see but Mike, I'm not just going to leave you with nothing. I've picked out an incredible teaser for next week. What do I got? All right. I can't jump into it just yet. So I pushed you up before. We got some smugglers coming. I want to know who you think's in that thopter. A part of me wants to say Gurney's in it, but I don't know for sure because oh. he's been avoiding Gurney. Intentionally. We, Intentionally. We saw Gurney. Well, Paul saw Gurney. And Paul was like, not today. Not today. Uh, I don't know why you think tomorrow would be an okay day. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you you did tell me that a little bit beforehand. I prepared two questions for you. Of one, I'll entertain. Do, well, do, what road do you want to go down first? Do you want me to go down, it is Gurney or it is not Gurney? 
All right. What if it's Gurney? Okay, if it's Gurney, Mike. Gurney's down there. What if Paul stabs him while he's in his steel suit? I don't Because they don't it. recognize each other. I don't other. believe it. No, no okay. you'd recognize him. Okay, I was prepared with a and counter. Gurney will always Wait. recognize the young master. Oh, that is true. Why would Paul recognize Gurney? That ink finds car, man. No, he's got a steel suit on. Who, Gurney? Yeah. You're still going to see that scar on his face. Uh, it doesn't okay. cover the whole thing. I was going to say footwork. Because he, remember when Thufir was approaching and he told Thufir, I would always know your footsteps? True. I mean, like, that's a good point. But, like, also, Gurney trained Paul, so he'll recognize his movements as well. There you go. But, like, that's still, better. There's the giant fucking no, motherfucker. Yeah, the- no, I'm gonna, no. <laughs> I totally accept that. Yes, either one. He might recognize Gurney. Okay, let's pretend Gurney's not there then. <gasps> okay. Who else could be on there? Oh, if it's just it. smugglers. Uh, I mean, like, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, holy shit! What if he kept? Did you not think about that? No, I don't think it's in the chapter. Then. <laughs> yeah, probably not. That's good. Mike, you're <laughs> reasoning. Him capturing Tuik would be fucking gnar. Of this, I was thinking like if he learned about a gurney through Tuik. Oh, of any manner of information. Oh, that'd be really cool, though. That would be a good discussion, which doesn't happen because you called me out on it so bad. Good for you. All right, third one, Mike. No oh. gurney. Who else do we know is all over Arrakis right now? Harkonnens. Hmm. Who else do we know is all over Arrakis right now? Besides the smugglers. Yep. Sadokar spies. Are they spark? Wait, who, wait, what? I don't recall who, there being who, Sardaukar spies. Who fucked up a conversation with Hasmir Fenring? Oh, and shit. For, for the last two years, Sardaukar spies I, have oh been God. everywhere on the planet. I did, okay, I knew there might be like Karina spies. I didn't think they'd be Sardaukar, though. Oh, there, there's no such thing as a Karina <laughs> spy that's not a Sardaukar. They're all Sardaukar. If it's not Fenring, yeah, I'm pretty that's sure. That's a really good point. I didn't think about Yeah, so they're going to be shit. like flooding some numbers, too, as well. Oh, searching my God. for Moa. Not, not so much searching for Moa Deep. As much as they are just probing the Fremen. Because, right, again, right, right. Even, the, uh, even the Baron is just like, eh, don't worry about that uh, prophet out there in the desert. I'm sure he's no big whoops. Uh. Um, <laughs> WD. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think with that, we entertain some possibilities there. Let me bring you into my quote. Okay. All right. <clears throat> oh, Give me a snippet. I should. Finally. Int- I got to introduce one character for you. God damn it. Korva. Wait, who? He is a member of the Fadaikin. <gasps> so he's good shit. Okay. <clears throat> okay. The failure was mine, Corva, Paul said. I should have warned you what to seek. In the future, when searching Sardaukar, remember this. Remember, too, that each has a false toenail or two that can be combined with other items secreted about their bodies to make an effective transmitter. They'll have one or more false tooth. They carry coils of sugar wire in their hair, so fine you can barely detect it, yet strong enough to garrote a man and cut their head, his head off in the process. With Sadokar, you must scan them, scope them, both reflex and hard ray, cut off every scalp of body hair, and when you're through, be certain you haven't discovered everything. Real quick, is... Paul from Jersey all of a sudden? I think so. <laughs> Some things cannot be helped once it starts, Mike. And uh, I don't know where these voices come from. Uh, <laughs> but that's the new Paul going for I don't is, like it. That is adult Paul. <laughs> he is the mayor of Springfield. Mark, I need a word on this. Like, <laughs> What's going on here? He's going to be offended you dragged him into this. <laughs> I'm not involved in this. Blame Canada. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're closer. <laughs> Fair. 
All right. I think that's going to do it for this week. Wait, wait. Can we just back up of like, that's the one line I've unpacked for you so many times when I've mentioned Sotokar and how many things they have on them? Yeah. Is that the sentence where you took all that from? That's it. That's always it. Of just like the many compartments they keep shit in. I found the the other planet you get sugar wire from. The fact that within a false toenail or two, they can make an entire transmitter. That's fucked up. That's pretty ingenious. So, like every single starter car is basically just like equipped to a T. Now, Mike, out of like biotechnical parts. Yeah, they're just they're half parts. Yeah. With that in mind, do you want to reflect back on uh, who we're gonna see on that smuggler craft? Because I guarantee it's gonna be some starter car. I don't think it's gonna be the Beast Reborn. Hmm. Oh, it'd be interesting. You definitely have Harkonnen colors on that ship. I don't think. Paul will see the Beast Reborn before Gurney does, right? Yeah. You don't think? I just, I need to see that fight. If Frank did that, it would be an injustice to literature. It really would be. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to press that button because no, Frank, you can't have that. <laughs> no, I'm taking that one away. I'm the arbiter today. <laughs> I think until he does it again, the, the spice, spice must flow. So it's still very much the French fighting the Vietnamese. And uh, interesting, inter- Ugh, give me a clap, I say. Interesting, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the book was published in. <laughs> <laughs> Walk away. And <laughs> I just cut the word. <laughs> Mike just saw that word win. <laughs>